Yes, what's happening, weirdos? Uh, this is far and away one of the more interesting people I've ever met. I met him at the uh, Ramdas retreat. His name is John Lockley. He is a healer. We sort of talk about whether or not he uh, likes the term shaman, but to give you an idea, I'll say shaman. Uh, he's from South Africa. He is super, super interesting. And in the, in the way that we use it on the show, uh, the good weird, he's that sort of weird, very, very interesting, somebody who I've never met anyone like him, and I was excited to have him on. Uh, he has a new book. We talk all about that. you got to check that out. Um, here are the plugs for this show. Um, October 5th in L.A. is my next Living at Largo show. The last one had Ali Wong, Zach Galifianakis. Any, who am I forgetting? Um, Kyle Donegan. Oh, it was just a good one. <laughs> the point is, is you never know who's going to show up, and it's always, always, always my highlight of the month. Uh, I'm also doing a bunch of little room shows there where I'm running my, my full set, like a longer set, so keep an eye out for those on Twitter. Uh, so that's October 5th. And then October 25th, I'm going to be in San Francisco at Cobb's through the whole weekend. That's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Hope you can make it. Cobb's, the club where Valerie and I met. And the baby will be here by now. Oh, by then. Oh, your due date. You're listening to this on Valerie's due date. Can you believe it? Oh, my gosh. And I'm plugging tour dates. These are the only tour dates for a while. I mean, now is the time. Yeah, get them while it's hot. Get them while it's hot. Because uh, I'm getting ready for the special, which I'm taping in Portland on November 4th. But we added two more shows, Portland, Oregon, uh, November 3rd. And I believe tickets are still available. Hope you can make it out. Let's get to John Lockley as quickly as possible, as I always say. I do want to give a shout out. I actually am wearing a new pair of MeUndies. Did you see these? Oh, yeah, Star Wars. Star Wars. Cool. Yeah, I know. This is what's kind of weird about underwear, is I had all this bad underwear, mm-hmm. this old underwear. Some of it was like hanging over from college, and, and I just was like, I'm a grown-ass man. I'm going to buy some nice freaking underwear. And uh, they, I'm, I'm a member of their club, which I'm going to tell you about here, because they're a Pete's pick. What I'm saying is they're my favorite underwear that I've ever owned, and I want you to try them. I actually reached out to MeUndies, and I was like, I love what you guys did. I did a whole closet overhaul from both me and Valerie. Can we get a promo code for the weirdos? They said yes. They're made from micro-modal fabric, which is three times softer than cotton. The fun prints do put me in a good mood in the morning. They fit fantastic. They don't ride up. They don't slide down. You're going to love them. And if you're, not just, if you're not into it, you can send them back and they give you a refund. They also send you a trial pair to put on before you put them all on, which I think is really fun. And as I mentioned, they just launched a new membership. You can level up your underwear drawer with new undies every month. I look forward to my little uh, update Last month was dogs. This month is Star Wars. And members get exclusive access to prints no one else can get. They're special uh, and member pricing on every product MeUndies makes. Um, That's it. If you want to try them, get 15% off your first pair. Show your support of this show. And you get free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go to MeUndies.com slash weird. That's MeUndies.com slash weird. The other two, Pete's Picks, you also know... Alpha Brain, it's a nootropic. It's like fish food for your ideas and your thinking brain. That's what I say. It's earth-grown ingredients, as I said, which it's not a stimulant. It's not like coffee. It doesn't get you up or anything like that. It's just nutrients for your noggin to help you think, concentrate, focus, and communicate. So 
So for the past four years now, anything that I do that requires my brain, 15 minutes beforehand, I take two or three alpha brain, I take the caplets. Sometimes I take the powder as well, it gets into your blood faster. Before I act, before I do stand-up, before I do a podcast, before I write, before I read. And as I always say, sometimes before Val and I just go on a date because I want to be a little sharp and I'm feeling tired and it's not the sort of tired that you want. Coffee or something, you just want to be able to think, alpha brain, I love it, I want you to try it. Go to onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird. You'll get 10% off everything you see on that landing page. And as I always say, show the support of the show. And the other one is uh, Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web makes hemp oil products. I actually just put some of their balm on my sore shoulder. This is my new obsession. It's got CBD oil in it. CBD is made from the hemp plant. They remove the THC. That's the stuff that gets you stoned. Uh, they remove that with science, and they leave the body beneficial muscle relaxing. I've just learned anxiety reducing for me, smile increasing for me, uh, CBD. Uh, it's legal in all 50 states. It's not an intoxicant. It's just a overall wellness plant-based formula that I love, I swear by. It's made by the Stanley Brothers who did this podcast. It's the only hemp grown for human consumption. There's other hemp products out there, but they're not grown exclusively to be consumed by humans. The Stanley Brothers grow it in Denver, and they ship it all around. They're very cool, very interesting, very lovely guys. So I want you to try it. I get the Everyday Advanced. They have oils, bombs. They have got caplets. Go to cwhemp.com weird and use promo code Keep It Crispy. You'll get 10% off. Uh, those are the Pete's Picks. Hope to see you out, uh, San Francisco, Portland. Still tickets available for both of those shows uh, or here in Los Angeles at Largo. And we'll be giving you updates about the baby. Yeah. Probably probably next week. Val's doing great. Right? Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm saying you're doing great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, hopefully uh, by the next episode, there's a baby. Isn't that wild? Yeah. We're super excited. She's very cozy and wrapped in a heated blanket right now, and it's 8.30, which is pretty late for us. Uh, so enjoy, get into John Lockley, and get into it. Yeah. Um, your name is John Lockley. Mm-hmm. You are, we'll figure out what this means, but you're a shaman. I'm a sanguma. Yes, even better. <laughs> which we would call a shaman. I suppose you would, yes. I mean, to be fair, like as an entry point. Let's get it. We'll get into all of it. I want <laughs> to lay it out in the way that is appropriate and right and respectful and true. People in the West might, if we had five seconds to explain what you are, we might say shaman. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? I suppose you could say that, yeah. You it could says say shaman on your website, John. I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a this just... isn't like my preference to call you a shaman. It's on johnlockley.com. <laughs> so don't – you got to help me out here. Shaman is kind of in the ballpark? Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what is the word? Well, you could say traditional traditional shaman, a sangoma. We call it sangomas. Sangoma. 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 From the South from, African tradition. From Southern Africa, yes. Yes. So we're known as traditional healers or traditional um, shamans from, from Southern Africa. Okay. But nowadays, sh- shamanism is, is taking on such a glamorous kind of image. So there's a difference between 
you could say, traditional shaman and someone who just calls themselves a shaman. I think there's a, there's a difference. There's a lot of it's people quite, in Beverly Hills that will call themselves shamans yeah, well, that will just yeah. si- sell you ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you mean? Is that like, what do people think, if you were to say I'm a shaman, what are, what are the misconceptions about like who you are and what you do? What do people think you do when you say that? I don't know. You'd have to do some research. But um, I think a traditional shaman is someone who gets called via dreams and comes close to death. And Those are the two requisites? Well, they get called by dreams, and then often the, the training is, is, is being very sick. Often you get very sick. Yeah, no, I know, that's, no, you know, I know that's... And you have no choice, really, to, but to, um, to train. So it's not a glamorous thing. Most people who get the calling don't want to become shamans because it's so painful. It's inconvenient and it's, painful. Yeah, very inconvenient. So yeah. tell me, back, don't, don't tell the story too quickly, because this, this I want to <laughs> savor. You're a young man. How, how old are you when this happens, when you get this dream? I was 16. 16. 16 years old. Did you have any guess on what you wanted to do? I had this idea of becoming a clinical psychologist and getting married by the time I was 28 and settling down. You had that age pick, 28? Yeah, 28, like, I don't know. I just thought there was I'll have fun for time. 12 years, <laughs> yeah. and, then I'll, and then I'll get married. And that's it. Uh, and you'll be a psychologist. I, I was planning on the you know, clinical psychology. That was it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And where were you when the, when the dream to your calling came? I was in South Africa living in Johannesburg and it was the height of the Civil War and apartheid uh-huh. and uh, the townships were in flames and I was at a private school and I was in this, uh, it had lots of land around us because like I said, it was a private school and there was no color, there was no apartheid at our school so we had all different nationalities and people from all over Africa and um, we used to call it the bush school because uh, we used to do long distance running in, in the felt Mm. And there was lots of forest around us. So we were kind of isolated from traditional South African society right. during school hours. And then I went home and um, spent most of the day at school. And only from the distance of going from school to home that I used to see the police trucks and the army vehicles. And oh, wow. But I, I was so isolated. Sort of I was isolated yeah. from it, basically. Isolated. Protected as, yeah, as a... Yeah. I mean, my dad did that for a reason, because he didn't want me to be infected by the curse of apartheid. Right. So he sent me and my brother to yeah, a private school. Yeah. Energetically, that has to take a huge toll. Huge, Not yeah, just huge. seeing violence, but huge, there has to be yeah. a, a feeling, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Everybody's affected by it. Huge, a massive. Even I mean, the kids. Do you remember feeling oh, yeah, happiness about that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was a sensitive kid, and I used to see um, you know, black guys getting put into the backs of... Um, of, of police vans and things mm. like that. Mm. And, um, and I don't know all the details, but I just remember feeling that this is just wrong. This is just wrong on every level. It's right. wrong, you know? Forgive my apartheid ignorance. Yeah. We know it's segregation and, and bias on, on color and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. The ca- so the black guys getting put in police vans are being taken to jail or being taken to another area? They're being I don't know. Or? I don't know. I mean, all kinds of things would happen. So um, apartheid, the word means separation. And the way they did it was they'd put um, black people in living in different areas to white people. And then uh, the black guys had to have what's called a pass. It's like a passport to give, get permission to work in certain areas. So you'd go into the white areas or Johannesburg or downtown or whatever, and you'd have to have a pass, like a special passport, to show that you have permission to live in those particular areas or to work in those particular areas. Wow. And it was a lot of bureaucracy, and you can imagine a lot of paperwork and a lot of it sounds like Nazi Germany. It sounds yeah. very similar yeah. to that sort of like yeah. classifying people in that way in papers and all that stuff. Yeah, it was very hectic. So uh, we had people working for us and we were helping people. My, my dad was helping um, people working for us. So we, we went through that process of, of getting a phone call at night and, and a, a member of our family. Well, he was a, a black guy, but he was working for us and we were very close. He was part of our family and, 
and my dad had to go and deal with the police at, late at night and and tell them to to back off and not hurt him because oh, wow. he was uh, part of our family and because my dad had a good job and good standing in the community they backed off you know and um and we were able to help him and well, he lived with us and so um he was a wonderful man and so just through him i got to see what it was like how they were living what the people went through and it was very sad you know very of very course, sad yeah. so that had a huge impact on me growing up and how the world is yeah a huge I mean, impact it, it had yeah, to yeah. Yeah. as a kid you had to think Mm. The world is a little bit crazy and a little bit unsafe. Yeah, and also the truth of what people are talking about is 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 not the truth of what's happening around you. So that's what I learned from the age of you know fourteen, fifteen. In fact, one of my earliest memories, and I always talk about this when I'm doing workshops, is um, I came home one day from school. Like I say, um, I went to a lovely school, and I didn't get to see apartheid around me. And I went. Um, I went home and then I was just resting in front of the TV and it was around six o'clock, which is when the news comes on. And then they showed the scene. It was a very powerful scene of um, the townships, one of the townships called Soweto, which was very well known for the race rights and the Soweto uprisings. And um, it was all over the world, the Soweto uprisings. And anyway, so there was a scene um, with all these tanks, all these soldiers and all these people marching in front of the tanks and then there was this one moment, which I've never forgotten, where this young guy, probably around the same age as me, I think his voice had just broken. He wasn't at school. Mm. And traditionally, you'd have the women and children marching and singing in front of the tanks because the men would be out working in the mines because that's where they're pushed into, working in the mines. And there was a scene of this young guy, like I say, around my age, 14, 15. He stood up, he had this deep voice, and he just lifted his hand in the air. And he just shouted out, Amandla! And everyone, the whole crowd of people just went, Go away too. And he went it again, Amandla! And everyone went, Go away too. And he did it the third time, Amandla! And everyone, Go away too. So what that meant was, well, I, I, I didn't know the words at that stage because um, I hadn't learned Kosovo Zulu. But I looked at all of this and the hairs went up the back of my neck. And I put down my sandwich and my coffee cup, whatever it was, and I felt the shame of having white skin. Oh, wow. And I also felt such pride in being a South African because mm. I'm a South African. I have white skin, sure, but I'm a South African as well. So I felt this great shame in having this, this vanilla white skin. This outfit. This outfit, <laughs> but such pride in being a South African. And I made a decision in that moment to learn the power of of what that young guy did because what did it mean i mean it, it means it means power and mandla means power and gawetu means to, uh, to us but what i felt in that moment was that here he was this young guy he had no shoes on he was out of school and he stood up in front of tanks yeah with the best Around your age the best the, mili- the best military in the world you know all these tanks all these guns facing at them yeah. and he felt nothing he just got connection with his own spirit, the spirit of his humanity. And he infected the whole group with the spirit of his humanity. And that's all he had. He just had his soul, his spirit, his chance, his voice. And I thought, I want to learn that because that's true power. Isn't that funny? That's true power. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's it's silly that this made me think of this. But um, I know sometimes at concerts and and TV tapings and stuff, they'll play music that has a strong – (laughs) <laughs> bass sort of sound mm-hmm. 
And the, the somebody explained this to me. They were like, it elevates everyone's heart rate. Everyone's heart rate will slowly kind of sync up to that beat, and yeah. it makes it helps the audience become one thing. Yeah. So like loud music before something. I know that's like a silly comparison to such an epic story, mm. but it's interesting how sounds and and sharing like chants large groups of people. We do it at our sports games, mm-hmm. but there's something about it. We're doing it to excite the players and ourselves maybe, but there does seem to be something sort of ancient and and basic about it in a, in a in a beautiful way. Yes, I mean the the roots essence of of being a sangoma. I mean a sangoma means people of the song because we connect with the spirit world through rhythm and song. So actually what broke the back of apartheid was not just Nelson Mandela, but it was all these grassroots people in the townships around South Africa who used their voice through singing, through dancing in front of the tanks. That's what broke apart. Because people, they couldn't shoot all the people because it would have been a massacre. Already there was a massacre in Soweto. Hmm. And the people couldn't do that anymore. They just couldn't do They couldn't kill people um, aimlessly. So what... Um, what broke the back of apartheid was what's called this Amandla spirit, the power of the song. And actually, when I started learning Kosa and Zulu, I've realized that the songs, the ancient Sangoma songs, medicine songs, were actually what was being sung in front of the tanks. So that's, that's the first I, time you heard it. I experienced it at the age of 14, 15 when I watched TV. And, and you sort of got that. the chills. And I got the moment. chills and I knew that this is what I had to spend my life learning and this is what I do. So, so that planted the seed. Yeah, so that, pre- seed. that predates yeah. the dream. You had this... Roughly, I suppose so. I suppose yeah. it did, yes. I mean, living and, now, and now when I travel the world and I sing these songs and I play my drum, people will they will start to feel calmer. They will start to dream about their ancestors. They will start to have a connection with their spirit, which they've never had before. And yeah. it's all because of this root, basic rhythm and drumming. Well, you asked me, I just got back, literally just got back from my retreat with Ramdas. Oh. And I, so I was alone for six days in a guest house oh, nice. in Maui. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. And it wasn't boring at all. <laughs> that was the first thing that surprised me was that I wasn't bored, that the inner world is actually very dynamic, dramatic, and interesting if you are paying attention to your dreams and how you feel moment to moment instead of, and I do this as well, instead of medicating or distracting yourself constantly. Mm -hmm. So I also was on a a weird rhythm. It's also something about Maui where I'd go to bed at like 8, 8.30 because it was dark (laughs) and and you got nothing to do. So I'd go to bed at 8.30. I'd wake up at 4.30. You'd watch the sun. And I started to experience this profound connection with nature, which I know is one of the mm. cornerstones of what you're talking about. Yes. But that, that reconnecting, how far we've come from the basic magic of the human experience and, and being connected to an earth that's floating in the cosmos. Is it, there's so many things to, to take us away from that. So many things. Too many things. Too many things. Dude, I came back. I was like, it is so loud. <laughs> I know they warn you about culture shock, but I was like... There is music everywhere. So forget music being special. Mm, mm, like mm. when I saw you play music in Maui, mm-hmm. that felt special. But, you know, my phone rings and it plays a song and I'm in a store and there's playing a song and a guy's playing a thing. There, there's this uh, saturation and oversaturation of stimuli. Mm. But when I was alone for six days, I was like really having a pretty interesting dialogue with myself and figuring out some of the darker corners of my own psyche yeah. because there's nothing else to do. Sure, that was interesting for it you. It was interesting. <laughs> it was better than the Great British Bake Off, and I don't say that lightly. 
That, but you know what I'm like. We, I, 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 I don't know if I'm taking words out of your mouth, but I feel like we've lost the basic complexity of being silent and being human and sort of dealing with that, singing yes. to it singing. and having it speak back to you. Mm. Isn't that? I mean, your jam. It's all about the reverb, you know. <laughs> I, I want to hear the echo. I'll the yell reverb. into the inner chasm, but I want to hear its feedback a little bit. It was very interesting. Yeah. All those cliches, like there's, there's still a child feeling in you. There's, there's these unhealed experiences from your youth. Those are cliches for a reason because there's these things that would mm-hmm. rather not think about because there's so much else, as I already said, to distract ourselves. So you're, you're doing like the basic rhythm singing stuff. To reconnect to a, mm. some of that quiet I'm talking about is that am, am I in the ballpark? Um, yes, I mean I've, this. This just this week I've been seeing quite a few clients who come into me for private sessions. I throw the bones and I, I look at their life path, and then I do plant healing sessions where I cleanse them with plants, traditional medicine. And uh, I'm going to need. I'm going to write down throw the bones because I and, don't, and, we need and, to know what that means. And for the listener, it's not uh, it's non hallucinogenic plants. So. Uh, <laughs> And one thing I've been doing a lot with clients is actually getting them to connect with their voice because I find a lot, of, a lot of clients, a lot of people are not connected to their voice. Mm. And what do when, you mean? You, when, they're, they're... when you're connected to your voice, you're connected to your spirit. So you want to join your spirit, your soul, not your ego, but connect with your soul and your own voice. And your voice is at the top of your, your voice box, as we know. It's the top of the spine. And it's connected to the spine. It's connected to this incredible electrical current, which we call the spine. And in traditional Sangoma tradition, um, traditional traditional Sangoma work, we work with the Umbalini energy, which is similar to what you speak about in yoga as the Kundalini. Yeah, energy. I was going to say it sounds like Kundalini. So when we chanting, we are connecting to that vibration at the top of the spine, which is the throat chakra. And I always teach people that first, when you're chanting, you must make sounds that you enjoy. And chant to the squirrels, chant to the birds. Don't worry about anyone around you. Don't worry about whether it sounds good to anyone. You chant because you want the sounds to feel good to your own body. So when you're chanting, you want to feel the reverb so that it's touching your skin, it's touching your body, and you start to feel um, you start to feel alive. Yeah. So you chant in such a way that you feel good, never mind what anyone else feels. And that is healing, and that's what starts you to connect with your own soul, your own spirit. Yeah. You hear someone like Lama Surya Das who did this podcast. If, uh, if yeah. you've ever heard – I know you studied Zen. Yes. I don't know if he's Zen, but he's Buddhist. Uh-huh. And if you hear him chant, yeah. it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It doesn't sound um, popular. No. You know what I mean? It's not like pretty. No. It's very like – you know what I mean? But you can feel that – it's like he's sitting on a subwoofer. The guy could cook <laughs> Jiffy Pop. You know what I'm saying? Like it's very – I have to imagine it, it It has an effect on how he feels. So you're saying you're trying to get some heat or some movement in your throat? Yes. I mean I, I, just, I just encourage clients to chant for themselves so they get that feeling in their throat and, and, and actually make deep sounds almost like these primal sounds. And it's not about – Anger, because I think here on the West Coast in California, God forbid anyone should be angry. Mm. You don't want to be angry because it's not cool. Right. So <laughs> literally, feel yeah. feel the feel that. Mm, yeah, mm, 
and just feel that guttural because yeah. people aren't making those sounds around you. So it's almost like food, you know, sound is food. And everyone is like, how are you having a nice day? Yeah, how are you doing? Oh, you're shopping good, nice, nice. It's all this the energy. Tones. It's all one level. <laughs> so you've got all this other energy which is building and people start to feel sick. So to ground their energy, all people have to do is sit up straight get their throat activated and just go, and that's the start of the primal scream, which used to happen here in California. In the 60s, yeah. In the 70s. And I wish they'd bring it back. I wish they'd bring the whole bloody primal scream back, you know, (laughs) with the nudity. Primal scream with nudity. Jeez, it'd be great here, wouldn't it? Everyone would be coming back to California. (laughs) Maybe. Imagine that, eh? Have you been to Santa Monica? We have some weird spots. (laughs) We have some spots. Oh, hi. I haven't heard any primal screaming yet. I mean, I'd love the primal scream. Primal scream therapy, I, I haven't done it. Yeah. But it's one of those things that when you explain it to people, most of the people I talk to, it makes sense and they kind of want to do it. Okay. You know, in Japan, they have like um, rec rooms, W-R-E-C-K, rooms filled with like plates and like a toilet and a piano that you can just go in and and break with a bat. Oh, wow. So it's like a very similar, well, uh, you know, I don't, I can't classify Japan. I've heard that Japan is also very repressed. Mm. You know, so like these services come in, like Primal Scream Therapy Mm. would say, get into your animal. You're also reminding me of like, The Castaneda novels and stuff talk about um, taking things like peyote and when you do Mm -hmm. the peyote having you act like a a wolf or something. Like this urge. I'm I'm saying forget about peyote. No, I know, but I'm I'm just trying to speak to the need that seems to be in us. Whether it's unlocked by you Mm -hmm. uh, telling us. Or some other method. Who cares? It doesn't. I'm not trying to get paper. I haven't done peyote, but I've read stories where people are like I take peyote and I acted like a wolf. I woke up. I was covered in mud. You know what I mean? Like there was something in them that wanted to stop resisting this Victorian. I put things on my neck and I I don't show any skin and I eat crumpets all day sort of thing. <laughs> Wouldn't you say that one of the things you're offering is an antidote to that sort of repression mm. that we are animals? Yeah, we are. We are animals. And animals, um, I always give the the symbol of the lotus flower because a lot of people do spiritual stuff here on the West Coast and the West, the Western world. But people are scared to connect with their shadow. So the lotus yeah. flower feeds off the mud. It's sucking up the mud all the time. And then when nature says it's ready, it, it blossoms. So the lotus flower doesn't go, when am I going to blossom? When am I going to blossom? When am I going to blossom? Mother Nature says, Keep sucking up the mud, honey. When you've sucked up enough mud, then you can blossom. <laughs> yeah. So it's like and the people, mud is the shadow. The mud is the shadow. The mud is the fertilizer. The mud is the, is the gravitas that makes us human. Mm. It's like art. When you're looking at good art, there's always going to be a bit of contrast, a bit of shadow. Otherwise, it's not art. It doesn't look good. Right. There needs to be a bit of shadow in any art. Chiroscuro. That's what they speak about with art. Chiroscuro. Mm. Where you're bringing in that... That, that shadow elements. So you've got depth. Depth of, perspe- uh, depth of perspective happens with, with, with the shadow in art. Right. Same with human beings. If you've, got no, if you've got no absorption or acknowledgement of your own shadow, you've got no depth. Mm. Then you just, you're just like a little, little cocoon running around the world like an alien. You're not right. human. The humanity in us is looking at our foibles, looking at our difficulties, our anxieties, not acting it out, but just being aware of it and feeling the dignity of your spine and being aware of what's happening inside of you. 
but not projecting it and throwing it onto other people because that's what leads to war. And this is what I saw in South Africa. You're looking at another culture, another person who's got a different color to you, different language. You don't understand their language. You feeling anger inside of you. You feeling sexual repression. You feeling whatever. The easiest thing for you to do is to blame this other person or this other culture because it and makes you feel them. better. Yeah. 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 And this is what I saw. Because you've been Africa. hating yourself. Yeah. This is you've what been I saw. hating yourself. You hate yeah. your sexuality. Yeah. You hate your violence. You hate your anger. Yeah. You hate your ugliness. And you push it on the other culture with and other you, people. Yeah. And if I'm hearing you correctly, yeah. a culture that might be more in tune, mm. it sounds like there's no, I don't want to say an animal way, but a more primal way, I don't, a, a more natural way, a less manufactured and let's be polite way. I think people project for any reason. It doesn't have to be a culture that yeah. looks more um, close to the earth. People That's what project, I'm to say, close to the earth. Yeah. People project just because people project. And I think people have to be aware of how they're projecting. Because that's what leads to to war. Yeah, I mean the same thing happened with with my with my Irish family. I mean, my mother comes from Ireland, and I was born in the seventies with three wars around me. So there was a civil war in South Africa when I came out in Cape Town, um, when I was born in Cape Town, and then there was a civil war in Rhodesia, which was Zimbabwe, and that's where my father is from. And my uncle was a a senior military officer there in in um, Rhodesia, so I was very aware of the war there. And then there was a war in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. And my mother would be on the phone speaking to family members in Belfast. And that war in Belfast and Northern Ireland, people would say it was between Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. I mean, both people are white, both people are civilized, both people speak English, and there's this war between them. You're it's crazy. You're absolutely it's absolutely right. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so and close. And people died. You're people so close. died. Yeah. Died, died, died. There was massive it's like I'm warfare. Gap and you're Old Navy. And mm. like we're killing each other. It's, it's absolutely it's so crazy. close. Yeah. And they're both Irish. Yeah. You know, and they're killing each so, other. But you, it, that illustrates your point perfectly, is it's not <laughs> just going, look at this other group. They're so different from us. Uh, I hate myself. Uh, and they reflect no. me and I'll get them. It's just no. any subtle difference yeah, we yeah. want. And they're both Christian. Right. Yes, Catholic, Protestant, both Christian. Right. And the bombs are being flown in. The bombs are going off. People are dying. Right. Terribly, you know. And you think, <laughs> so it's interesting. What do we do then? It's probably a big question or a big answer. Yeah. I'm not sure. What do we do with our shadow? I'm all, I love this. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan friar, I don't know if he made it up or Freud said yeah. it. He calls it shadow boxing, like using your shadow, sparring with it, communicating with it, being honest with it. it it's like, um, I don't know. I, I had such shame when I, especially when I was young, about mm. sexuality specifically because yeah. I grew up Christian and, and I thought that it was wrong. Mm. So like it, it, it became this whole hide it from, this is my ex-wife, hide it from my ex-wife. Uh, if I looked at pornography or if I masturbated or something, like, there's all this hate yeah. bubbling inside me. But I mean, I wonder what the answer is. Is it more of a communication or is it straight hedonism or should we follow all our impulses? Or you're, I don't know. I think the answer is just to be aware. Be aware of your thoughts. Be aware of those impulses inside of you and breathe into it because that's the making Give it of space. It. That's the making yeah. of the Zen master. That's the making of someone who becomes self-realized is by just looking at the shadow and dancing it, being creative with it, um, becoming a joker like yourself, making stories about it, yeah. uh, poetry. There are different things to do with the energy. Creativity yeah. Yeah. starts in the shadow realm. That's how we get creative, by tapping into those areas. It's not the evil realm. 
evil only happens when people are not connected to the shadow. And that's how evil flourishes. But evil, in the, the shadow is not evil. Shadow is those things which we... We deny about ourselves that we are ashamed of. It right. could be anxiety. It, it could, could be, be selfishness. It could be feeling like you're getting a bit chubby. It could be uh, <laughs> whatever. It could be anything. Yeah. Anything that you feel makes you feel a little bit embarrassed or a little bit shy or yeah. a little bit, ooh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, why we can joke about it and laugh about it. And in so doing, this creative energy comes up and you start to feel a little bit better. And you also allow other people around you to feel better. Yeah. I think this is why we're suspicious of like very perfect seeming comedians. Oh my god. We're goodness. actually talking about that. If somebody's very, very, very good looking and very, very muscular and just kind of see and they just look like they smell great, you're just kind of like <laughs> it, it it's not always right. There are exceptions, but usually you go like, Well, I bet he's not very funny. If I see someone with like a corrective boot and rubber bands on their braces and thick glasses, I go like, Well, this is a guy who knows what it's like to not feel so pretty. Exactly, yeah. And I bet That's it. he has some feelings about it because yeah. at night you're falling asleep. You're dealing with those feelings that society puts on you. Yeah. And this is where we develop art. Mm-hmm. We might, we, I think it might be too cheap to say it's a sense of humor. You're actually creating things, little things you tell yourself. Then you tell other people and they laugh and you're like, oh, I guess I'm funny. Mm-hmm. But really they're just coping mechanisms. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. It's all coping mechanisms. I mean, dealing with the shadow, feeling your, your, your pain. It's basically feeling your wounds. So I'm a, I'm a wounded healer. And that's what a shaman is. A shaman is someone who's a wounded healer, who's come close to death, who's had major illnesses, who's come through it, who's been initiated by a tradition, who's been initiated by elders, who've invited you in, who've trained you, apprenticed you. That's what a shaman is. But then on top of that, you are a wounded healer. So for myself, I've come close to death three times. You know, I was washed out to sea. I had a major car accident. I've also nursed people who've who've, who've passed on to the other world Mm. as a medic. And it's not glamorous. It's very painful. It's, It's not easy. But at the same time, when you're touching humanity in such a powerful way, you get to see the true gift in being a human being. You get to see everything. Mm. And part of this is also being able to laugh. And the joy of laughter is the joy of, of, of being human, of, of being alive. Well, isn't, isn't laughing yeah. maybe salving primarily our fear of impermanence of death? I mean, like, it, eh? things become a lot funnier I think mm. around thirty, when you're like, oh wow, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <I>, try fifty. <laughs> yeah, no, I know you're not fifty, are no, you? Really? Jesus, no, I'm not. I was gonna say you, you look fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but try fifty. I just yeah, saw yeah. Ramdas. How old is he? Eighty-eight, is he? It's really interesting. It's yeah, I, he's no, I don't younger. know if he's eighty-eight. He's, he's getting little. younger. I mean, it's amazing. No, he, he like is. last year, he was better than the first year I met him. And, no, I know. And I just spoke to Trudy Goodman, and she said to me, "He's looking great. Like his voice is great. He's." His skin's great. Like he's getting younger. It's like the must be. He's like going backwards. He younger. is going backwards. He's Benjamin <laughs> Button, which is incredible. <laughs> so you, you you're touching on all these things. We, I I really want to talk about. Oh, nice. But going chrono- in chronological order. By the time you were 16, you hadn't almost died. Mm-mm. No. So no, and then uh, you had the dream. Yeah. No. So in the dream, um, I can just share the dream because it's 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 got some common points for people in in, in America. Where were you? I, I will again. I was in Johannesburg. I was at home, staying at home, and you're, you're focused. sleeping. Yeah. yeah. And and in the dream, I uh, I was yeah. in, I was in South America, and in the dream, I was I was searching for gold in South America, and it was very can very. I, vivid. Sorry, can I stop? I'm sorry. Was it normal that you would remember your dreams or have a vivid dream? 
Yes, yes. I, so you were an active dreaming person. Yes, I, uh, it's in my family. My mother, you know, being Irish, and my grandmother, we've we've all been quite good dreamers. The Irish are good dreamers? Yeah, they were great oh, dreamers. I didn't know. The start of poetry and writing and creativity, the dreaming. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I uh, keep going. You're in South America and you're looking for gold. I'm looking for gold in the dream, that's it. And I'm following, I'm tracking, feeling, and the jungle is there and it's very vivid, like I say. And then eventually I find this, this, this casket and it's full of gold and I open it and there's all this gold there and then suddenly I wake up and as I wake up there's this woman's voice that says to me very strongly very wisely very compassionately she says to me in order for you to find your destiny you have to come close to death and then I woke up and I knew what was going to happen to me I knew that I was going to be conscripted into the South African army as a white male drafted that's what we had it was like uh, vietnam for you guys we were all drafted once we hit 18 and i knew that i had two years to go or 18 months and i was going to be drafted into the south african army and i knew in that moment after the dream that i was going to choose the medical corps and become a paramedic and go to the front lines in angola because at that stage we had a war on in angola which went for 10 years was like our vietnam and i knew that um, I needed to cho- choose to go into the medical corps, and and was and that train. because you didn't want to kill, or is it more that you just wanted to help in that way? Exactly, yeah. I didn't want to kill, obviously, and I wanted to be a healer. And I knew from that dream that I was going to come close to death working with soldiers, and also I was going to learn about healing, and uh, and so that's what I did. So so that was wow. what happened to me. So and um, did that happen? Did you see? I don't want to ask a crude question but was it like that did you see a lot of pain and i saw a lot of pain when i finished school and i was just about to go into the military the angolan war ended and it was a 10-year war like i say it was horrific the cubans were there the russians the americans everyone was there in, in angola because of all the diamonds and the raw uh, resources you know wow. and it was a horrific war and um it ended literally three months before I went into the military, but we still had conscription. We still had the draft. So I went in into the medical corps, and I didn't go to the front lines because the war just ended. So they put me into a military hospital, and I was put into the front lines in a military hospital. So I was there helping to rehabilitate special forces soldiers, wow. and they had just come from the front lines. And that's how I started learning about African traditional healing because all, most of the soldiers I was working with were black special forces, and they started teaching me. And the they soldiers really, themselves? They started teaching me, and they really loved me, and I loved them, because I wasn't brought up with apartheid. I was at this private school. My friends had all colors of the skin. Skin wasn't an issue for me, so they never saw or experienced it from me, so I treated them a loving, in a loving way, as, as a, as yeah. without color. And they right. picked that up, and they found it unusual, and they took me under their wing, and they, they started training me. In about, their traditions. About traditional so healing. So not the tradition necessarily, that, certainly, that you hadn't been trained to do as a yeah. medic. They were like, look, you're doing that on this. Would you mind doing some of this? No. Um, they taught me about spirituality, about dreaming. Oh. So I can share one story. It was my first Sangoma teaching that happened to me at the age of 18. And uh, I used to go into the ward every day and open the, the curtains and, and, and just say to the guys, good morning, um, and as I did that, for three consecutive days, I used to say, good morning, guys. Did you have any good dreams? 
because that's what we used to do at home. I mean, I was young. I was an 18-year-old kid, you know. Yeah. So I'd go in, open the curtains, and this beautiful sunlight would come flashing in from Pretoria, very bright morning. And I would say, morning, guys. Did you have any good dreams? And everyone would be quiet. It was like a church. No one would say a word. And they all spoke English. And on the third day, I did this. I said, morning, guys. Did you have any good dreams? And then I was quiet. And then there was this voice at the back of the room. It was medic. Come over here, medic. I want to speak to you. <laughs> so then I, I walked to the end of the room, and there was Sergeant, uh, Sergeant and Lovu. And um, he was a Zulu sergeant, a very powerful man, and he was in charge of this whole platoon. I said, yes, Sergeant, sir. How can I help you, Sergeant? He said, medic, in my culture, dreams are very sacred. When I dream, my ancestors show me who's going to live and who's going to die in my platoon. I tell my men, some of them laugh at me, but they still die. Please don't ever ask me again if I've had any good dreams. Wow. <laughs> in my culture, dreams are very sacred. I said to him, thank you, Sergeant, sir. Thank you. Now, Sergeant Nlovu was becoming a Sangoma. He was becoming, he was an apprenticing Zulu Sangoma. He was going through the time of ritual, the time of initiation. And all the nursing staff, black nursing staff, were giving him gifts every day, showing him a lot of respect because they could see his gift of seeing. They could see his Sangoma gift. And I felt the truth in his words because of my own dreams. And then I started my own calling to become a Sangoma about three months later. But the, the dream with the casket and the gold mm. didn't... I guess it's a silly thing to say about dreams. It didn't literally say it gave you a feeling that this was the path for you. Yes. Like no. I thought maybe the voice was going to say you're going to be a, a Sangoma. Well, no, that opened the door for me to, to work with illness, to work uh, with yeah. death. And then when I was in the rehabilitation ward, I wasn't dealing with death. I was dealing with people who were very badly injured. Mm. And then I went to the matron of the hospital and I asked her. So after that experience as sergeant in Lovell, I realized that I had to work with people who were dying. So I went to the matron of the hospital because I felt what Sergeant Nlova was saying beyond the words. I felt something. I felt that I needed to answer the call of working with uh, mortality. Hmm. So I went to the matron of the hospital and I asked if I could get a transfer to work in ICU. And she said to me, she's never, ever heard of a conscripted soldier who wants to do more work, not less. <laughs> and I didn't tell her about my dreams. Obviously, it was private. All I said to her was that I wanted to become a clinical psychologist, so I wanted to do more, get more medical training, you know. Mm. So I thought that made sense. Um, so she said to me, okay, well, the intensive care unit is full at the moment, but neurology isn't. We need medics in neurology. So they got me to go into neurology probably about a few weeks later. And um, within two days of going to neurology, I put a, a sergeant into a body bag. He just died. Wow. And, and that's when I started experiencing... That was your first time seeing... First seeing a dead body, yeah. And that was my first time of working with extreme suffering because um, my patients, each person, each medic was given two or three patients to mind over their shift of about six hours. So it was very intensive nursing, very intensive um, learning all kinds, of, all kinds of things in terms of working closely with GPs, doctors, consultants senior nurses. And I just ate it all up. I mean, I, I learned the medical world very quickly because I had this calling for it. 
And the the penny dropped for me in terms of my destiny when I nursed um, a young man of about 21 um, and he was dying. And each day his mother would say to me, is, is he going to live or is he going to die, John? Now you can imagine, I was 18 years old and her mo- this mother is asking me every day, is her son going to live or die? And every day I'm feeling his pulse and every day I'm feeling this is not looking good. And they had all these tubes keeping him alive. He was in a coma. And eventually the nursing staff and the family and the doctors decided to turn his machines off. And it was such a horrific case. It was so painful for all the medics and the, and the nursing staff that uh, one of the medics came to me and he'd been there for two or three years and he just said to me, it's too much for him. He said, can I stand by the side of, of, of this patient and do the vital observations? Because he, he couldn't. It was too emotional. Mm. And I knew that was my calling. So I said, yes. So I stood by the side and I felt his pulse. I felt his pulse going down. And I nursed him for six weeks. And as I left his room one day, I knew that that was going to be the last time I was going to see him. And I prayed. I said, God, ancestors, Jesus, whoever's out there, (laughs) I want you to show me something. Um, Give me some answers to this kind of suffering because this is wrong. This is wrong that I'm experiencing this. It's something, this kind of suffering is beyond the charts. It's over. It's overload. I want to learn something that I can help people when I'm ever in a situation like this again and connect to their soul and give a message to the family members so that the suffering is ameliorated, you know, eased a little bit. Because of that mom, I mean, that mom. It was just horrific. It was yeah. beyond the charts, horrific. So I left and I was angry. I was angry, you know, and I left. And two days later, I came back and his room was, was cleared. He was gone. He had died. Mm. And, uh, and I was angry. And, uh, and anger is a good thing. Because anger is what turns the spirit sometimes in terms of finding answers to things. And then literally two weeks later... You mean, of, is another way to say that the universe responds to your anger? Well, there's different kinds of angers. There's anger where you react to something and there's anger which fires your spirit and gets you to concentrate and start searching and go, this is wrong, I'm going to find the answers. Yeah, That's positive anger. So that's yeah. what I had. <laughs> and... Uh, and then a friend of mine literally two weeks later came to me and said, John, I'm, I'm, I'm starting this, this meditation thing called Zen. Have you ever heard of it? I'm like, no, what's Zen? He says, it's, it's part of Buddhism, you know, Zen Buddhism. And I want you to join me. Do you want to join me? And I'm like, what is it? And he said, Why well, did he choose you, do you think? Well, we were, we were close friends and he wasn't um, in the army, but he, he, was, living, he was living in Johannesburg and, um, and he was my best friend and mm. he was learning French. And this French teacher happened to be a lay nun under this very well-known Zen master in, in Japan called Zen Master Dishimaru. And she started teaching him and he said, can you join me? And this is what it's about. <laughs> cool. And, and, and uh, I said, what is Zen and, and what is Buddhism? And he said, well, Zen Buddhism attempts to answer the question of what is suffering. Mm. And I, that got me, what is suffering? Because I was a Catholic raised Catholic, Irish Catholic, and nothing answered the question for me of simply of what is suffering. What causes suffering? Isn't that interesting that what Buddha is, is suffering? Yeah. Buddha's ma- yeah, obviously what is suffering. Yeah, I wasn't so correcting was you. Yeah. But that's so interesting that that was Buddha's main concern mm. was helping us figure out suffering and how to end suffering. But it was always, I remember when I heard that yeah. when I was a kid, suffering is caused by desire. And if you give up desire, you end suffering. 
one of the kind of teaching ideas. And yeah. I remember being like, give up desire. Like it's like the stupidest thing I had ever heard. <laughs> it was like one way to not get in a bike accident is give up bicycling. You know what I mean? Like it seemed like a catch. Yeah. Like of course I want – I was like 12 when I yeah, heard that. Yeah, I was like yeah. of course I, I want things. I want to do this. I want to go here. I want to go – so it almost seems like an older man's game to realize how silly it is and who is doing the wanting in the first place, all that sort of deep stuff. Mm. But here you are at 18 going like I'm in. Yeah. I want to I want to know. But the question was what is suffering? Why do we live? Why do we die? Why do we suffer? So that that old existential question, that's what Zen was was asking. So I went on a retreat literally 4 weeks after starting and uh, the retreat was in the mountains in the forest in South Africa and um and I was asking these questions of why do we eat every day? You know, what is suffering? And um and then after the retreat I went home and I was just about to go to the back to the military hospital and then I had this very profound dream and that's where I I connected with becoming a sangoma. What your question was why do we eat every day? Did I hear you correctly? Well that's an old zen zen kongan. Um it's, oh, it's really? why do we eat every day? What is your face before you're born? And what is your face going to be when you die? Wow. So those are good And ones. also what is your how is nature calling you? You know, what is your direction? Hmm. What is your direction? What is your life calling? Why do we eat every day? Mm. That, that's, that's the question there is, what is your life calling? What is your purpose? Yeah. You know, the Buddha said, what is your purpose? Your purpose in life is to find your purpose. Wow. That, and every human being, it's their responsibility to find that. No one's going to give it to you and say, this is your calling. You have to find it. You have to search for it. You have to get angry you have to, about it. You have to pray. You have to meditate. You have to dance. You have to scream. You have to growl. You have to growl. You have to go into your shadow. Surrender. You have, to, you have to do all these things to find your purpose. And it's your responsibility. You can't blame your priest, your lover, your best friend, your parents. Here's the thing. In psychology, everyone blames the parents, but you cannot blame your parents about whether you find your life purpose or not. Because it's there. Is you that one of your, is You that have to find it. It's it, your job. Is one of your beliefs that... Everybody has something. Everyone is born a human being. But in order to become a human being, you have to find your life purpose. So there's many people walking around who aren't properly human because they haven't found their purpose. I mean, I, wouldn't you say that's like the predominant problem? <laughs> like a lot of us don't know yeah. what it is to do. Like Valerie, my wife just came home yeah. and was like, I'm never happier than when I'm dancing. She goes to this dance class and she's like, I'm never happier than when I'm dancing. I want to teach this dance. And I was there like, you go. I, because I'm a comedian, I got that feeling from comedy. I was like, ah, you know what I mean? Had yeah. we a, a, a cer- ceremonial celebration, we would have done it. Mm. Because I know, I'm 10 years older than she is, uh, I know how fucking important it is to go, that's when time disappears. Mm. That's when I'm in no pain. I'm, I'm in the flow. I'm yeah. in the zone. I'm yeah. in my bliss. Uh-huh. So you're saying get down and dirty. If I, I'm sure there's... Get down and dirty? Where did I say that? I'm saying get down. <laughs> well, you're saying growl and, and get angry and that's down and dirty. Uh, not necessarily. It's different for each person. I, I, I'm just feeling, you know, when I'm teaching a client, I'm saying they need to feel their voice and feel the growl. And it's not anger. It's just feel the energy in their spine because that's what activates the umbilini, the kundalini energy. But that means get involved. Yeah. Not down and dirty, but get, get involved. involved with who you are. What I'm saying is I think a lot of... Sorry? Yeah. 
I think a lot of people are going, my thing will come to me. Like, I'll watch a, the next Netflix movie might give me an idea. Oh, I'll be a pilot or something. You know what take I mean? action. Take, take action. action. Don't and be passive. Take, take action. Don't be yeah. passive. And don't blame, you know. Yeah. Take responsibility for your gift of being a human being. Yeah. In South Africa, we talk about the Ubuntu, which means humanity. Mm. And we say everyone is born human, but through prayer and through introspection and through being kind and dealing with other people – you become a human being. Mm. Just as you, because you're born a human being doesn't mean that you, you're connected with humanity. It's interesting. I think about like something that was very popular in the mm. West was the secret and manifestation and vision boards and stuff. Have you heard yeah. about these things? A vision board. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because when we talk about prayer, there's yeah. something about pointing your heart towards what it is that you want. Yes, yes. And something that, again, was popular in the West was making those boards where you'd put Im- – let's say you want to be a doctor. You'd put images of doctors and healing and all these things to send a message to your subconscious that would sort of like alter the course of your decision-making. Yeah. Like you'd remember – because your subconscious speaks in symbols. That's kind mm-hmm. of like a Jungian mm-hmm. idea. Uh-huh. So you give it symbols, these images to tell it this is what we're after. Um, obviously, like everything in the West, we turned it into a way to get money and a Lamborghini and all these things. So, so you just put like boobs on the board and you put like <laughs> piles of cash and drugs and all these things. But like if I'm hearing you correctly, prayer is a, a way to put in motion the powers of your inner being, your subconscious, and maybe I, I have a feeling you would say the spiritual world as well. Yeah, but I have to also highlight something which I think is very, very important and that is – there's two things going on with every human being nowadays. There's the ego and there's the soul. And most people don't know what their soul is. Most people think that their ego is their soul and it isn't. So nowadays we have a proliferation of the ego, which has been demonstrated with social media. So the ego is so strong. And what is the ego? It's your personality. It's your persona. It's your image. But that's something that's going to fade as you get old and definitely when you die. And we've already seen it change. Yeah, toddler, it's changed. Toddler you is different from you. It's changing you. all the time. Yeah. But this is when people suffer from major depression, when they identify with their personality, with their ego. And the job in becoming a spiritual person is to actually find your soul, to find your spirit. Something to, eternal behind that. To find that part of you which is immortal. And that is with the question of what is your face before you're born and what is your face going to be when you die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's connecting to that immortality. And as we dream, and as that, that, that Sergeant and Lova was saying, when he dreams, his ancestors show him who's going to live and who's going to die. What is that about? It's basically he's connected to the dream time. He's connected to the space that is immortal. And through doing that, he's connected to the soul of man. And that's why all these nursing sisters were giving him gifts because he can see the soul in each person. He had transcended his ego. In those moments. And that's my job is to see the soul in each person, help them right. to f- connect with their own soul, their own spirit. And this is why people are so sick. Like in L.A., people are so connected to the superficial way that they look and if they're looking sexy or not and whether <laughs> they can get good contacts, whether they can get good celebrity status, whether they can get fame. It's all feeding this ego, and people can never be happy in that situation. The hungry never, ghost. never be happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sickness. It's a sickness. Serious and sickness. Yeah. 
Richard Rohr, I've mentioned him twice today. I'm on a Richard Rohr sort of mind. He said the fundamental principle of all major religions is letting it all go. Uh-huh. And there's something very beautiful about that, realizing the impermanence of the ego and the futility of it. Mm. We've talked about it on this podcast, um, Soul Consciousness, as watching your own drama unfold like a TV show. Mm-hmm. So even like a bad day, yeah. you go, that was a pretty good episode. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I, w- I wonder if John's going to get out of this. Oh, John's on a podcast. How's he going to do? Like, that's all that sort of like stupid, but we take it so very seriously. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things I love about Ramdas is he's trying to get you back into your soul. What I didn't realize and one of the things I kind of uncovered or felt or, or kind of embodied on the retreat was you're not just watching it with curiosity. You're actually watching it with love and compassion. Mm, so mm. it's this otherworldly state of love. Mm. It's not – I used to think it was things like I love my parents. Like if I'm annoyed by my parents, I'd go, I love them. It's where I came from. That's your brain trying to figure out a reason mm. why to love your parents. Like trying to convince you yeah, yeah, yeah. with reason. That's why you should love your parents. Whereas Ramdas, now I, I can see it. it. It finally sunk in. It's not a rational love. It's an eternal, uh, irrational, transrational state of being compassionate and mm. being loving that all of the major disciplines seem to be pointing to is, is get away from the idea of I'm Pete and I like coffee and I like action movies and Matt Damon and, and get past that into something that like your koans are pointing to, yeah. something a little bit more meaningful and that that's that's what we're looking for as human beings is meaning but we keep mm. vomiting and shitting into the into the facebook wheel <laughs> the wheel of death <laughs> thinking that if we can reflect our ego back to us enough we'll get full when really none of that is actually giving us sustenance whatsoever and then we can just laugh at all of it because it's funny it then it is funny <laughs> no that's where the real laugh comes from the joke of of our predicament and, that, and that's also the compassion, too. It's not mm. judging it and going, oh, I'm so stupid for getting caught in the drama of Pete and John right now and mm. Katie. You're actually watching and go, oh, wow, that's cool. Wow, interesting. You know, giving it, giving it love and giving mm. it space. And maybe that's where we can be less toxic and take ourselves yeah. less seriously. I mean, I saw the scene just, just as I came here, and not here today, but when I arrived in Beverly Hills. And it was so funny. I saw this blonde girl walking across the street, and she had that stylized, straight blonde hair, and she had these beautiful sunglasses on, beautiful figure, really slender. She had a particular kind of model pout on her lips. <laughs> and as she's walking across the street, there was this car that was kind of waiting for her, and she just went like this, you know, just like swatting a fly, like with her hand. Waved it on. Waved it on, and she had this particular pout on her face, and she walked past me, and I was like, Really? Wow, you know, like, like, what is that? You know, <laughs> like, why not? Why not? Like just the, just the attitude, and just yeah. that holding that particular kind of body. Oh, because she did it dismissively and oh, sort so of like, yeah, this yeah, yeah. kind of attitude. And I was just thinking, wow, you know, that was so interesting. Yeah, it'd be nice to have a chat with her and get her to take the glasses off and shake her booty a little bit and get her to relax yeah. and then just see her spirit because she was holding something. Well, isn't that why Val loves dancing? Yeah, and, she, and she's pregnant right now, so she's dancing oh, nice. pregnant barefoot. Wow. In a group of women, and I and she comes home and she looks like you know she just went on a pilgrimage, <laughs> and it's because when she's getting into that rhythm with that group, it's the opposite of crossing the street with a duck pout, <laughs> waving on undoubtedly a BMW. You know what I mean? Like that. 
I know you know we're all I love the image of the of the hungry ghost, the big belly and the, the pencil thin neck. Yeah. Nothing gets in. We keep shoving in and in and in and in yeah. and realizing that's why I love the Jim Carrey quote, I wish everyone could get rich and famous so they could see it's not the answer. I, love I think that. that isn't that great? I love that. Jim Carrey's great. Love He's him. great. He's right on. He's and, so good. And, and I'm privileged that I've gotten to taste of the sweet fruits of showbiz as well, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And I'm grateful for the, uh, ooh, Katie, the Hungry. door opened. Did it really? Yeah, a little bit. The Hungry Ghost wants to come in and say hello. No, she, she was saying the, the studio's haunted. It must have been It could have been. You know, Occam's yeah. Razor, somebody might have opened the front door. A little oh, vacuum action. But didn't you lock the front door? Well, why don't you go check on it? Bring this candelabra. <laughs> Put on this nightgown. Bring this candelabra. And, and if we don't hear from you in 20 minutes, we'll, we'll you don't have you. to check on it. I'm curious. I think we're all curious. <laughs> this no, is turning into... Oh, Katie right. is now opening the door and going into the haunted hallway. She seems terrified. No one's here. Katie was telling me that the, the studio is haunted, that this oh. door tends to open on its own and whatnot. But anyway, w- before we get back into the super uh, paranormal and all that fun <laughs> stuff, which is fun to talk with, with anybody, I, I love this area that you're talking about, about encouraging people into their spirit. Because mm. I saw the word spirit a lot in your, in your website and your work and all that. Oh. And I was wondering if, if you had that perspective of human beings being the meat puppet around a soul, if that's what you meant by spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Meat puppets. I like that. Meat puppets. You know, every every human being has an indigenous soul. So what is it to be indigenous? It means to be close to the earth. So even with every CEO in New York City or LA, there's this, there's little mystic kind of indigenous spirit inside of them that just wants to climb out and kind of get some sage and get some smoke and scream and take mm. their shoes off and just dance underneath the underneath the moon naked, yeah. you know? <laughs> I mean, every CEO just wants to do that, you know? Because yeah. the, every human being is so similar. We're all so similar in so many ways. I mean, I noticed this being brought up, being adopted by the Krosa people, and my teacher doesn't speak English. And I didn't speak Krosa at that time. And here she is. She's a short black woman, dark hair, dreadlocks with beautiful hands, beautiful eyes, a beautiful spirit, and she adopted me. This tall, six foot three, white guy with big teeth, <laughs> long hair, blonde, like we're opposites, but we're the same. And when she looked at me and she said to me, I want you to become my apprentice. I want you to become a Sangoma. I said to her, Mama, what does it mean to become a Sangoma? She said to become a Sangoma means you're going to be able to heal people in all different ways, you're going to be able to, um, the spirit's going to move through you and you're going to stop being so sick. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll become a That's Sangoma. exactly what you wanted. So I thought I'll become a Sangoma. And then she said, okay, tomorrow I'll give you your first white beads and it'll be a sign that you are, you're my apprentice. And then she taught me, what does it mean to be indigenous? What does it mean to connect to the earth? But she didn't teach me like in a lecture way, like in a Western way, like today we're going to talk about soul retrieval. Right. It wasn't that way. She taught me with actions. She taught me with observing, with listening, with sitting next to her while she spoke to clients, while she counseled people, while she gave them herbs and plants and channeled the energies of the ancestors in the earth. And I'll never forget one day 
when I was sitting next to her, and this man came in. He was um, he was uh, um, maybe around in his forties or late thirties, forties. He was um, a man who had responsibilities, children, a wife. He came in, very well dressed, lovely guy, lovely feeling about him. He sat down. We closed the door, and. She started talking to him with this, with this very just motherly voice. She started talking to him and she just said to him, Kunjani Buti, Kunjani Namslanji Buti, how are you, my, my brother? How are you today? And then he just burst into tears. And I never seen a grown man cry like that. Mm. He cried like thunder, like the rain was falling, and my heart just completely smashed open. Mm. He cried because he could cry in front of her. Mm. And he cried and he cried for about five minutes. He cried because life was so difficult. And all she said was, She just said, oh, my brother, oh, my brother. She just let him cry. Mm. And then afterwards, she said to him, She said, come back tomorrow and I'll give you some herbs to help wash your tears away. Mm. And, I learned something in that moment that sometimes you just got to let people feel their pain for a day. She didn't do anything that day. She just, she just listened to him. She's like, this is, this is and, it's and, not and, something that we're embarrassed about or ashamed about. It's like, this is happening. This is, and it was 10 minutes. He was there 10, 15 minutes with her. And in that time he got healing in 15 minutes. He got healing, you know, because of a space space that she just gave him the space. See, that's to a be big Ramdas thing is that like, you can't, change anybody what you can do is be spacious mm-hmm. and let them change mm. in your spaciousness like yeah. it's, a, it's a it's a quality of consciousness that i've noticed that something that i've been practicing lately is you have dinner with somebody can you just be in that state of love as much as possible and then watch what they'll do watch what your dad will do if you stop kind of analyzing him <laughs> and just it's, it's literally a feeling of a shifting back into a space. Like your periphery gets wider. Mm. Your heart literally feels more open. And then see what they work out and see if you get a little bit closer to like that weird long overdue apology that you've both wanted to give each other or whatever it might be yeah. just because you were being open. I know you know this, but most of the time we're just speaking, looking to the other person to see if they heard what we said. You know what I mean? Mm. We're just going around trying to get validation. Mm. It's like the the you know beta version of getting likes on Facebook. It's like, do you see me? I'm over here. I'm desperate. I'm mm. over here. But if you actually practice the other way, and the people that do this really do stand out, mm. uh, you see a lot of them at the Ramdas retreat. These spacious people that that actually give and allow, like like your like your teacher did in yes. that moment. Mm. Of course, she did it quite remarkably. I mean, mm. it was amazing. I must say. And then he came back, and what herbs? Well, that's that's where we treat people. We 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 give them herbs to cleanse the body and cleanse the spirit. You and know? you just paid attention to that. You saw, oh, yeah. this guy yeah. has a broken heart, and I'm gonna. Oh, she grabbed some of these and some of these. Mm, that's it. Yeah, that's it. So, so there's different ways of healing, but the the main way of healing first is a diagno- diagnostic or diagnosis, and that's where we do a divination, where you read the spirit of a person to see what's happening to them. So, <laughs> well, how do you do that? Well, that's part of the gift where the, the, the spirits come through you and, you, and you, you start channeling and you, you start praying and then you get an image and you, get a, you start to see things. So that's what happens to me. I start to see things with people and then I see where the block is, where the obstacle is, 
and, and what they need to do to, to connect more with themselves. Oh, wow. And yeah. is that something you do deliberately only, or is that are you ever just at a party and you just go like, no. oh my god, this guy needs to talk to his mother or something? You have to be careful. So that's is part that right? of the training. That's part of the training. Oh, I, I'm, I, I want to be very clear. I'm not mm. teasing. I'm wondering mm. if it comes in randomly. It has in the past, but generally I, I try to keep it to a session. Yeah. When I'm having a time. With and what do you mean because, you have to be careful? Because you have to. Someone has to give you permission to read their soul. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah, someone has to give you permission. So coming for a session and paying an exchange, because um, exchange is very important in the traditional world. You have to pay something. You have to give an exchange. And um, because it takes a lot of training to make someone a, a traditional shaman. It takes a lot of training. So it's a, a show of respect, like you were saying to the well, guy. Well, it takes a lot of training. I mean, I had, yeah. to, I had to pay for my, tr- my, my training. It was like a university degree. It wasn't for free. So it's a profession. This is a profession. It's one of the oldest professions in the world. Wow. So people have always paid for a, for a, for a divination. Mm. Going back four, five hundred years, a thousand years, people have always paid for that, whether it's a goat or whether it's a, a sheep or whether it's livestock. Now it's money. So it's important because it requires sacrifice. Like I have to, I have to um, use a lot of my own energy to connect with someone's spirit, mm. and that requires sacrifice on my behalf. Um, and but it's for a good cause. And then with the person, in terms of the clients, they have to be ready to let someone look at their soul, and that's they have a big to be thing. Open to it. They have to be open, and then realize it's not a game. It's not entertainment, and they have to treat it seriously. Not a party trick. No, no, no. It's not a psychic. Um, oh, I mean, a psychic being a psychic is a serious thing, and it's it's not a party trick. And um, but it's not something with a sandwich board in Manhattan. No, this is like no. a this is like a serious thing. Yeah, it is quite so. Um, but it's serious and it's playful. So I like to dance between the two. Sometimes I can be quite. Um, humorous in my sessions because I don't want it to be too heavy with people. Mm. So I dance between the two of being serious and being light mm. because otherwise people get traumatized. <laughs> you don't want to burn them when they're coming to see you. <laughs> <laughs> if it gets too serious. Yeah. Well, I have to imagine people must be nervous. They're, I'm sure they are. Especially in the West coming mm, to see you. Mm. I'll admit that like, you know, it's because there's so much I don't know about what you do. Mm. Coming to this today, I was like, Oh boy! I hope I don't step on his toes. I hope I don't say the wrong thing. <laughs> Whereas anyone else, you could be an astrophysicist and I'd just be like, "So what's going on?" Like I wouldn't care, but I want to make sure we get this right. But okay, when people come, do you feel that nervousness? Is is that where you use humor to sort of diffuse that feeling? Yes, that's <laughs> why I use humor. So I almost become a bit like you in the session. I have to like you know get back to being serious sometimes. <laughs> that's awesome. But I, I have to imagine that. One of the great things about getting people laughing is mm. it helps them open. Mm-mm. You feel it. That's one of the strange things about public speaking. Is mm. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of times with stand-up comedy, I don't like what's being transmitted underneath it. Sometimes it is like a fearful or an ugly thing that's being sold to mm. people. And then you soften them and you get them laughing. You can get people agreeing with something that might not be that great. You know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of an abuse. You have to Are, be careful with humor. Humor is, a, is, a, is very powerful. Yeah. Humor is very powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I, I've noticed that when you're laughing, I think it was George Carlin that said this. Like when you laugh, you sort of forget your identity. So it's a way of sort of nudging people. I don't want to get super serious and say nudging them into their soul, but it's certainly a way of nudging them out of their ego potentially. Mm, mm, mm. If you get them in a real clean, good laugh, you're gone. <laughs> you're not even there. You're not an American. You're not a woman. 
you're not hungry or sleepy. You're just in that laugh, mm. and it can feel very, very beautiful in that way. That's amazing. And when I do my workshops or public talks, I often get people to uh, do some singing and dancing because it always seems to to just change the atmosphere. So yeah. I always feel that I can't really start talking to people or talk at a group until I get people to sing and dance and and to shake their shake themselves a bit. Yeah. And then they're ready for me to give some teaching or share something or whatever it is, you know. We are stiff, aren't we? Stiff, stiff. Yeah. <laughs> the Walking Dead, some people. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Yeah, you get the heart rate going. and So I do this kind of crazy kind of thing where I get people to kind of slap, slap their butts, you know, slap their, slap their butts. <laughs> you can say slap, asses. Slap their, you know, slap their asses. And, uh, <laughs> there you go. I do this thing where I, where I get them to dance and just slap themselves around a bit. And, but it's actually acupressure, acu, uh, you know, I get them to kind of wake up because a lot of people are just surviving especially in the Western world, from their shoulders up. Mm. But they had this whole other world from their shoulders down to their that's, toes. That's that Alan Watts quote. The whole other world. world. He's like, you're, you think you're behind your eyeballs and the rest just dangles. That's what he <laughs> says. It's like we're up here and it's just like a doll underneath us. But obviously yeah. when you're still and silent, you realize that there's a lot going on mm. below. And I have to imagine dancing and slapping your own butt. That does it. I tell you, it does it. It's amazing. You should see people in the, in, in the audience. It just well, you see when people just amazing. go swimming. Mm. Like you said, you, wouldn't you agree? Like go on a little walk or something. We're so we're so stiff and sedentary. Like I, I notice when I get in water, you're grounded. You're connected to the earth in the ocean, especially, mm-hmm. and you're moving around in all these like very silly porpoise-like, I'm spinning, I'm slippery, I'm touching the sand, it gets you alive again, as opposed to you can struggle. You know, when I'm, you know, editing the show or something, I'm just sitting in a chair. It's very, it's a very different type of humanity. And I I think the majority Mm. of people listening to this podcast probably work in offices or in Mm. situations where they might forget that they have thighs. (laughs) You know what I mean? You see a baby tripping out, they're just like still in awe that they have a foot. We kind of, there's an argument to be made. We should be more connected, wouldn't you say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To, the, to the phenomena that you have a foot. You have two feet. Can you imagine that? Eh? It's fucking crazy. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, the more I get into this, the more I get into a simple place of wonder. I know it's a stoner cliche to look at your hand, but I don't have to be, people sometimes catch me and tease me staring at the phenomenon that my hand is obeying a command from a physical object called a brain that we know is electric, which is just one of those great words that we're like, we don't fully understand neurons and Mm -hmm. pathways and that stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm just this consciousness operating this operating software. And I can move my hands like this. I can play the (laughs) piano. I can... You can mix your fingers up and lose track of which one's which and try and move one and you move a different one. It's a fucking trip to be in these things. <laughs> and yet, and I'm guilty of this too, we're, too often we're watching a movie we've already seen. You know, I, literally, I don't mean that as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'll watch a movie I've already seen instead of just being quiet and tripping out on hands. But it's hard. <laughs> People listening, I have to imagine, are very interested in what you're saying, the sort of rewilding mm-hmm. of ourselves. What it, We talked a little bit of that guttural chanting Mm -hmm. is there are there any other i don't want to reduce what you do to tips but are there things that you do to try and not lose your center when you're in a place like this i think it's important for people to realize that like you just said we these highly evolved electrical 
beings. So we have all this electricity going up and down our spines. And if you think about the principle of electricity, what happens to electricity if it doesn't have good earth, if it's not earth properly, a whole electrical system in a house becomes unstable. Mm. So if you look at the human race nowadays, it's unstable because it's not being earthed. You literally mean grounded. Yeah, yeah. earthed, grounded. So yeah. every electrical socket has got a grounding pin. Is that not right? Three, yeah, there's no, three pins. There's yep. three pins and, and one the of them is a grounding. One is the grounding one, yeah. yeah. And if it doesn't have that, then you've got a real serious problem with your whole house because it could – it's just – it's unstable. Yeah. So nowadays, human beings, we have this electrical system and we are unstable because we're not being grounded. We're not being earthed. Yeah. So what I do is very simple. I just help people to earth themselves and then they get the dreams and they get these epiphanies and that's all I do. And is that just walking barefoot in the grass? There's or? many different ways of doing it, but I could say to the listener that if they're feeling a bit stressed or a bit tired, the best thing to do is just take your shoes and socks off, go outside, and actually just just dance in the grass. Just put your feet into the ground and just, just push your feet in, yeah. up and down, up and down, and go for a walk like that, walk right. in a forest, right. take your shoes off. It's simple. You never think of it's that. Simple. Like, it's it so simple. It seems so backwards mm. to us. It's so simple. The idea of removing the luxury of your shoes <laughs> and your socks. Yeah. But I am with you. When I flew to Melbourne, mm. the first thing we did was take shoesy socksies off and walked in the park and get all that electricity mm. from the plane out of you. It's huge. And then you're not, there's no jet lag. Mm. It, it helps you reconnect to the earth. And then you're like, okay, I'm on this yeah. cycle now. And when I flew to Maui, that was no joke. I flew from New York to LA. That's six hours. Slept that night. Went to New, uh, LA to Maui. It's another six hours. So that's 12 hours of flying in, mm. in two days. And the first thing I did when I got to Ramdas was jump in the pool and, and it helped. It gets you close in the, in the ground, mm. which, you know, earthing. So I think it, people just need to realize that because what actually starts to happen to people is that they go into their head and they start analyzing because we've got a great computer and we start analyzing our emotions, and our feelings, when actually what really needs to happen, you just need to go outside, take your shoes and socks off, just do some breathing, stretching, walk up and down, go for a walk in the forest. But people don't do that. What they do is they start analyzing emotions and then looking at where the problem is, looking at their lover, their friend. And then start analyzing, as, and as you guys here in America talk about processing. I've got to process this now. And when processing often involves blaming someone else about what's happening to you or having a discussion and getting worried. But what really needs to happen is take your shoes and socks off, go outside, breathe, <laughs> and just walk up and down. And that's actually saving your karma because you're not building any negative karma. You're not creating re reactivity. Right, more you're not hurting anyone. You're just stopping all that drama and all that talking and all that processing. Right. And you're and just stopping it. Yeah. And, you, and you're preventing all this potential karma to be developed and drama. And you go back to the office sitting down, have a sandwich, have a drink of coffee. You're feeling great. And you've actually not had that conversation with your girlfriend that you're going to have. And oh my God, if yeah. you had that conversation, maybe you would maybe not be together now, you know? Right. That's and it so might true. not have anything to do with her. It isn't. But That's the, the but point. we like having something to blame. Yeah, of course. I mean, this because goes back in a way to war and what you're saying. It's mm -hmm. like we like someone else to shoot. We're to not going to be shoot responsible. Ourselves. Someone has to be responsible for this. But here's the thing. What happens if we are responsible for our own what's going on, you know? Yeah. Listen to your heart. Listen to your bones. You're taking responsible, responsibility for every action you make. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a thing for anyone, huh? It sure is. It absolutely <laughs> is. And who are you anyway? If, if we're not associating with the ego, yeah. it's a little bit easier to blame Pete. Or, it's, it's or, Donald, or Donald. Or Donald. Ah, you know, I was, I was in the Donald. plane. Before I touched down in America, I was yeah. in the plane. And, and the next thing, I start talking to this lovely lady. And she starts, we start talking about politics. And oh, I can't stand politics. And then I just said, you know, if Donald came in here today, I'd... I'd get him to sit down and give him a cup of coffee and chat to him, see how he's doing. And she said, uh, you know, I'm a God-fearing uh, um, Christian, and uh, I love Jesus, but I hate that man. I hate him, I hate him. I'm like, excuse me? She says, I hate that man, I hate him, I hate him. And I said, well, if Jesus came in, he would say we must love everyone. How can you hate someone? Right. I'm a God-fearing Christian, but I hate that man. I hate him, I hate him. And I'm like... Was there a ringtone? What? <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? You know, we, we need to not blame someone else, no matter if they're president or they're someone very famous. Yeah. Just give them a gap, you know, and show some. Like as, as Ram Das said, you must love everyone. Yeah. You know, love everyone. But what's interesting. And look at what's going on inside ourselves, you know. I, I want to put this to you because I don't want to put the period on your own sentence, but it's that idea, it's because it's what I've been working with lately. Mm. Rational love, brain goes, well, Donald's doing his best. Like, it's try- let's say it's trying. Mm. You know, he's just a guy and he's doing what he thinks is right. So I love him. I love him. That, that I can't get to, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's say. Uh, I can't. But the, the irrational, beyond reason love, the soul mm-hmm. love, mm-hmm. that's the love I think Christ is calling it to. I was just writing about this where it's like, Jesus says, love your neighbor, but there's no like, like your neighbor. You don't have to like their personality. You don't have to want to hang out with them. This is where we get phony holy. Yes. This yes. is where we go, of course, invite halitosis alcoholic Ron to my birthday. I love halitosis alcoholic Ron. You don't have to pretend <laughs> to like halitosis alcoholic Ron. He sucks. <laughs> I can love his predicament. And I can love what's behind his personality because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the real love anyway. Mm-hmm. That conditional sort of like he tells a good story, that's only good as long as he keeps telling good stories. That's not even good love. It's like a cheap type of love. Mm-hmm, I think Christ mm-hmm. is calling us to a deeper kind of love that has nothing to do with your brain, mm-hmm. which again, I, I, I know I said it earlier. It's just my trip right now. It's a state of being. It's mm-hmm. like it's, I'm, I can be love in the presence of someone awful like what Trump is doing or this person or this person. When when Ramdas was at the retreat you were at, I think, Ramdas says, I hate Trump here, he points to his head, then he goes, but not here. And he points to his heart. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was right on. This mm-hmm. woman, I Very think good, yeah. it mm-hmm. seems to me, I don't want to judge this person, yeah, is getting a little stuck in ego identification. So yes. she's going, I'm I'm a Christian, but I hate this guy. Why not just be like, I hate him in my head, but in my heart all are welcome. I, I don't even make sense in my heart. Mm. I'm melted butter in the pan. You can't even find me mm, mm. because I'm, what am I? What is my face after I'm dead? What am I? Mm. I'm consciousness. I'm awareness. Mm. And that, that awareness has room for the scoundrels and the thieves and the murderers and the, and the horrific, terrible things that happen. Mm, mm. Wouldn't, is that? I think it's the same thing. Yes. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah. Again, I didn't want to steal your point, but you no, got me inspired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I relate to that. Like I thought I had 
if I was a Christian, it meant I had to like everybody. I mean, we have the situation in South Africa when we do these traditional ceremonies. It's it's quite different from what you get here in the Western world because it's because of traditional Africa, and in these traditional ceremonies, everyone in the in the community is invited, hmm. and it's what we call Ubuntu, which in English means humanity. So. The people come in because we've got free food and drink. So it's just given to people because it's about blessing the ceremony. So the more people come, the more you're being blessed because people bring their stories, they bring their songs, they bring their energy. Mm. So you are blessed by the number of people coming to your ceremony. So when I was being initiated to become a, a senior Sangoma after 10 years training, 10 years apprenticeship, we had people come from all over, hundreds of people. My only concern is, could I feed all these people? And I just, I just pray that I could, and I did. Hmm. And there was this one thing that I'll never forgotten. It was incredible, actually. My teacher's husband, who 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 adopted me, and so he's like my adopted Kosa father. He he's an amazing man, and the two of us just speak Kosa uh, together. And just for the listener to to put it in perspective, that the Kosa nation is the nation of Nelson Mandela. So Nelson Mandela is a Kosa man, and so is Desmond Tutu. So I've been very lucky to be adopted by this this traditional and this Desmond tribe. Desmond is Tutu, yeah, <laughs> and Desmond is Tutu, yes. <laughs> and uh, so this one this one story was amazing. My, my ceremony had was just going, and it was just about to finish. And my my Kosa father, um, Tata Suguini. He comes to me and it's first thing in the morning and we've just woken up and he says, oh, So he said, you know, your ceremony was really beautiful. And I'm like, tata, thank you, Father. And then he describes what he saw the night before. And he's a very funny man. You'd love him. Eh? He's very profound, but he's very funny. And he said he saw two Tsotsis. Now, Tsotsis are gangsters. Now, here's the thing, just like what you said. Everyone is welcome to the ceremony as long as they behave themselves including gangsters. Now, that's a hell of a thing. People who you're not friends with, but you know are troublemakers in the community, if they come into a traditional ceremony and they behave themselves, their humanity is welcomed. Even though we know their actions outside, they're gangsters. So he saw these young Tsotsis, these young gangsters coming in. He watched them. He looked at them. They looked at him. And he allowed them in because... There's a rule in his house that as long as you behave yourself and you show the respect and protocol, you're welcome. So he just watched them and they watched him and they greeted him with respect and they behaved themselves. And he said um, when they left, Tlingo, they left at about 2 o'clock in the morning and he watched them walking down the road and he heard them shouting at each other and he thought they were going to start fighting with each other and start hurting each other. And he just watched and he watched and he saw them laughing he saw them shouting, and the next thing he said, they were arm in arm. They had their arms around each other, and their laughter and their shouting was the energy of love, he said. Mm. And he saw that as a good symbol of the, of the ceremony, as these two gangster guys and walking down the road into the distance. They had their arms around each other, and he said that was a sign for him. He said that my ceremony had been blessed mm. by the two young Tsotsis, two young gangsters. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Something beyond yeah. the role we're playing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> in this world. Something behind it. You said humanity. Yeah, and it's it's that giving the space to not judging someone for their actions. And I know, you know, committing crimes and hurting people, obviously it's completely wrong. But in this space where people could come into a traditional ceremony onto someone's land and as long as they behave themselves 
they could reconnect to their humanity and that could probably save them. Right. And that was the essence of this tradition. We always think about that like stranger love. If you went to a new town and no one knew you, yeah. the love you can – we love stories like that. Somebody who did something goes somewhere and they're loved because mm-hmm. no one knows what they did. Then they find out what they did yes. and then everyone has to choose whether or not they're going to keep loving them. It's a bit like that and also going to church where it's a neutral area. It's yeah. a neutral territory. Mm. And, and then in that space, you can you can reconnect with who you are, your spirit. Right. But, I, you know, I, with Ramdas, every time he talks about his foibles and stuff, that's, <laughs> what, that's what keeps me in. Really, like right now, I believe he's working on a book that's like about his life. And I was like, bring it on. Like I can't wait. Every time he starts talking about – that's actually a question I had for you. You live mm. in this very uh, rich, unfamiliar to me – spiritual, like you say, it's no joke, right? Where you come from, it's like this is respected. It's like getting your doctorate. You studied in an apprenticeship mm. for 10 years mm. and that's a thing. People sign up and it's uh, it's acknowledged. Mm. Do you ever have doubts? Doubts about what? About the, the reality uh, that you play within? <laughs> like a spiritual reality? Do you ever feel doubt and just go like, oh, this is all just psych- psychological stuff? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I think, no. Um, no, I mean, I think one amazing thing, and, and this is what I want to speak to from what you just, you asked a really good question, so I want to speak to that in a very humble way, because I have felt sad, I have felt depressed, and I have suffered from depression and all these things. I really have because I'm living between two worlds that have been at war with each other. I mean, the world of the white white privileged people in South Africa and African culture. I mean, come on, I was brought up in a war zone, and then I became a traditional healer, uh, African traditional healer, where the white people were not respecting the Sangomas. They were demonizing them. And then I'm in an African community where I'm the only white person and you think they all love me? No, because they didn't know me. They just saw my white skin. And a lot of people after apartheid hated white people for good reason, because of the way they'd been treated. So that was very difficult for me. So, yeah, I suffered from depression. Yes, it was very difficult for me. Mm. But one thing I have to share with you is that I would, I would sure do my prayers. I'd do my meditation. And then I would just try and get out of the way. And, and, and even sometimes I would just really be upset and not sure where to go. And things would happen. I would get these profound dreams where I'd be guided to go somewhere. And I'd go, jeez, oh, I don't know if I should really go to New York. I mean, I had this dream about New York. I don't know if I should go. And then I would listen to the dream. I think, okay, let's just give it a go. Let's see what happens. So I would listen to a dream and then go to a place, let's say, for example, New York City, which did happen, and then had these most incredible experiences. Hmm. And this happened once, twice, three times, four times. It's happened so many times in my life now that I will get a, a very powerful, let's say, prophetic dream, and, and I'll be nervous. I'll be nervous about following through with it, but then always amazed at the magic and possibility that happens on the other side. I mean, even coming to L.A. this time, I was, I was a bit nervous. I felt my body. I was like, geez, I don't know what's going to happen. And I've learned to, to also see that nervous tension as the possibility of incredible growth mm. and things that are going to happen. Because as I touched down in L.A., um, a lot of magic has happened for me. I've met such amazing people. And, and so I realized that nervous tension or, is also a preliminary 
um, energy to, to incredible growth. So um, I've had to keep working with my gifts and working through anxiety and, and depression and things that my rational, egoic mind um, comes up with, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I, I have to watch myself so much because we're making a TV show, so I look at footage of myself all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, am I that guy? Because I'm like, that guy... I don't know who that guy is. I, I feel more in here than out there, if that makes sense. He looks like the role more than, than who I really am. But you don't feel the doubt. I didn't think you did. No. And that, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I think a, a lot of people, spiritual people, maybe religious people, at certain points go like, this could be baloney. Well, I feel the craziness of it and I feel, you know, the questioning in my mind and I feel the, the low self-esteem and the depression, all that stuff I feel. That's true. But then I also get these very profound insights and dreams that are not me. They come through me. Right. And it's something that I is love part it. of this dream time, is part of this consciousness, the matrix that connects Ram Dass, connects you. I mean, I was invited to Ram Dass's retreat two years ago and I just heard about him in popular media, and I never realized that I'd ever have an opportunity of meeting him. And out of the blue, I was invited. I was in Maui, and then I was invited to actually hang out with him. And it was completely left-field stuff, and they weren't looking for it. So I've had these incredible experiences that I never went looking for that came to me, and often the preliminary kind of um, point of that was, was getting a profound dream and um, getting this incredible kind of intuition or awareness. And, and it's bigger than me. I think that's what I'm saying. I don't identify yeah, with it. It's much right. bigger than me. And as I listen to it and learn to connect more with it, my doubts fall away and I become um, a happier person. But I'm still dealing with John. I'm still dealing that's with what my anxieties. I always will. Yeah. You know, I always will. It's part of being human. That's why I brought up <laughs> watching me on the screen. Yeah. I go, that guy has plenty of doubts. Yeah. But in, when I'm in another part of myself, those doubts aren't there. Exactly. I have, but I have to surrender that sort of story of that guy. And, and I, I'm happy to say I spend less and less time in him. I'm, I'm him most of the time. <laughs> but there's little respites. So we're dancing. That's what we are. We're dancing between this persona and this ego and this limitless immortality that we are all touching. You know, yeah. And all the masters like Ram Dass, Jack Cornfield, all these guys, they're touching that and they're teaching us how to touch it ourselves. Yeah. So all I'm doing with clients and with people is helping them to connect with the inner mystic with themselves. And that inner mystic often comes to us through our, our dreams, our nightly dreams. Is there so, something? Oh, go ahead. So teaching people how to connect with their inner mystic. And often that involves humor or dancing or movement or what literally happens to you when you sleep at night and you close your eyes and you stop thinking. Mm. What is going on there? Are we, I've heard some people, I'd love to talk about dreams. I'd love to know if you have something that we can do to get in touch with our dreams Turn your phone off. <laughs> Turn your phone off? Turn your phone off. That's what you must do. Turn your phone off. We'll put it on airplane mode so you it mean doesn't when? ring. Just all, before all you, the time. Well, as much time as you can. Yeah. <laughs> get, away, get away from technology and those distractions that keep you in the, in the mind. Definitely before you go to sleep at night, you know, have the phone not on silent, but have it off. Have it on airplane mode or switched off. Yeah. Um, and I just have it on airplane mode so that the alarm goes off. But when you wake up, don't turn your phone on straight away because the outside world comes flooding in in terms of emails. Yeah, Don't do that, that to yourself. To Don't do that. I normally turn my phone on, on like after breakfast, you know, so I'll give it about, you know, an hour or so. Isn't that funny? 
All you need to do, I've made That's this joke before, to be like a Buddha these days huh. is be off your phone most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're like so far ahead of most people if you can just do that. Because I've started to do that too where my phone is on airplane mode and I'll meditate in the morning. Yeah. And it's usually in the meditation I start to remember the dreams, like these little yes. flashes come back. That's right. And I used to go, oh, I don't remember my dreams. You don't give yourself a chance to remember them. That's right. They're so tricky. They're, they can be slippery. But when you remember them, it's very rewarding. They're riddles. The dream time is a riddle. It's just like a, it's like a Zen Kongan. Zen mm. Kongan is a riddle. And you have, to give, you have to concentrate and give yourself the gift of listening to your dreams. Mm. Because each one has that gift. I don't get it more than you do. We all are given something from the universe equally. And all we have to do is listen to that. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not John Lockley gets the no. special dreams and I get these stupid dreams. I, 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 get, I do get um, maybe I get different dreams to you. So you get the dream of becoming a comedian and traveling, you know, in America and the world. I get the dream of becoming a Sangoma and traveling the world. It's different. Yeah. Everyone has a different calling. And it's not about comparing yourself and thinking, oh, just I wish I could be like, like Pete or I wish I could be like John. The thing is to be who you are meant to be and the way you know that is through listening to your dreams. Interesting. And there are no – I in the past, Joe Mandy actually came on this podcast. We, we bought some shamanic – these are what it said on Amazon. Shamanic dream tea. We drank some tea. <laughs> you probably knew what was in it. Man, <laughs> do not recommend unless you know what you're doing. This stuff was strong. What was in it? I could look it up. It was, this was years ago. Uh-huh. But the way I put it was it gives you dreams you're not even in. You know those <laughs> dreams where you're like, I'm not in this dream. I am a hovering awareness. What, I still remember them watching like a very vivid episode of a show that doesn't exist, just like watching mm. something. Else. It was really, really trippy. Mm. And then I, David Nickturn, who's a friend of mine, was very one of my first – and entrees into spirituality was lucid dreaming, oh. was realizing that that reality wasn't real. And something that I do in this reality all the time is make sure I'm not dreaming. I, I've done it, you know, not while we're talking, but I've done it today. I look at my hands. Is that what you do? I am now. <laughs> I, I look at my hands because when you're dreaming, you do a terrible job. If you look at your hands, they'll look wrong. And you know, the hands, you can tell someone's destiny by looking at their hands. I always look at people's hands and I can tell what's happening with them. Tell me everything. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember my teacher, my lovely teacher, Mum Gwe, when I first met her, she's this, you know, this African crosser woman. And, um, and I remember looking at her hands and being mesmerized by this, these delicate hands, such delicate, beautiful hands and her eyes. And I realized I'd found my teacher just through that synchronicity of looking at the eyes and looking at the hands. Really? So in our hands, we're holding our spirit. Hmm. And to find your spirit, all we have to do is look in our hands, look at the lines of our hands, literally look at your hands and feel the spirit in your fingers. (laughs) Is there any guide for that or you're just using your intuition? Paying attention. I remember once, you know, in, in Dublin, I had this calling to go and connect with my mother's people, my mother's family, because she's from Dublin, Ireland. So I went to Ireland and I worked for this multinational company in customer service, and I was deeply, I was miserable, absolutely miserable. And I remember having drinks after work every Friday with the guys, and I'm not much of a drinker, so I'd have like, I don't know, three, four beers, and I, I just wouldn't feel well. And I remember being on this bus, driving home late at night, 
and actually looking at my hands and looking at the lines of my hands and thinking, I'm not, I'm not really supposed to be here. Hmm. I'm not really supposed to be doing this. And that was going through my mind. And I was so mesmerized looking at my hands that there was this girl in front of me. She turns around. She says, what do you look at your hands for? I'm like, I was like so embarrassed. And I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm she was quite cute actually. And I was like looking at my hands, looking at her. And I stopped looking at my hands, obviously, you know, I started looking yeah, at her. Yeah. And then the conversation ended. And it was about two weeks later, I went out again. And I had another unfulfilling experience of drinking beers and coming home on the bus and looking at my hands and feeling nauseous and thinking, you know, it was only four beers that I had and I'm just not feeling great. And what am I doing? Having beers on a Friday, going home now, I'm just not happy. And true, true enough, looking at my hand, this girl pipes up in front of me. What are you looking at your hands again? It was the same woman. No. So, I mean, that's so random. It was the same woman. Friday night, two or three weeks later in the future, she said, you did the same thing about two weeks ago. What's the story with you and your hands? I'm like, man. And that woman is your wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, she isn't. No, but, um, I remember thinking, I need to leave Dublin. So that's what I did. I left Dublin. I went back to South Africa and, and I finished my training. Listening and, to your hand. Well, listening to the spirit in the hand, listening yeah. to my consciousness yeah, that yeah. I wasn't in the place I was supposed to be. I think we all know that. And yeah. there was something inside of me that was saying, you move, go, something's yeah. wrong, something's wrong. Yeah. And when she acknowledged that there was something wrong because the space around us had changed because she was looking at me, looking at my hands, which there was, it was like the, the world around me was saying, pay attention. Mm. What are you doing? What are you doing? It's funny because I noticed I stopped drinking about a year ago, and that helps my dreams. Okay, I've noticed that somebody I, I know this because a stand-up has a joke about um, you stop drinking, you start dreaming again. And he was like, I was literally drinking my dreams away. <laughs> like, mm. like I, I didn't know if that was true, but his doctor told him that that's a common thing. It has been true for me that the quality of sleep I get without drinking before I mm. sleep probably you just go deeper and all that stuff. Do you believe that you're literally traveling somewhere it's not just a phenomenon of your subconscious but is there some sort of astral travel happening in your dreams <clears throat> i think a lot of things happen in our dreams and one of the reasons is because we are multi-dimensional creatures human beings are fascinating we're very magical and once you tap into the magic of who you are it's almost like anything's possible and i think that that idea of anything's possible is enough to make people get afraid and actually start blaming others mm, because of after that. Yeah. <laughs> because it's almost it's almost too much for people. So just you know the five the ten commandments in Christianity and in Buddhism we have five precepts. All these little rules and codes are there to live simply so we don't drink too much, we don't take drugs, you just keep your conscious consciousness I wouldn't even say pure, but just where you are looking at... Unadulterated. The, yeah, looking at the pool of life inside of you, where you're sleeping properly, where you're not lying, you're not cheating, you're not right. overindulging, not hurting anyone. And then when you're meditating in that state and you're breathing, things happen. Mm. Things happen. It's so simple as a human being. I remember one day just being on another bus traveling around, you know, an island and just thinking, it, it's so simple. All we have to do is not drink too much, not take drugs, be honest with yourself, honest with others, and, and listen. Mm. And that's it. All the answers are there for all of us. Because if you look outside the window, like where I'm living at the moment in L.A. is Benedict, Benedict Canyon above Beverly Hills. And when I'm having coffee in the mornings, I'm watching the, the squirrels and I'm watching the, the birds. And, you know, the squirrel has everything. The squirrel has everything. The squirrel's got no iPhone, but 
I got everything. And I'm watching the squirrels and they are watching me. This is the thing. I'm sitting there on my iPhone doing my thing or consulting, whatever, putting everything down. And the next thing, I'm looking up and little monkeys, little squirrels are actually coming to the window and they're actually looking directly at me. <laughs> and they've got everything and they're watching me. And the next thing I thought was fascinating the other night, I was sitting on the patio outside and I watched this, I think it was a rat. It was this huge, it was the biggest bit of wildlife I've seen in Beverly Hills, this big rat. And it came very, very close to me. And it was looking me straight in the eye. And I just, I was so aware of this wild creature, this wild one, that had absolutely everything it needed. You know, the universe had given it everything. And it was so in tune with everything. And it kept coming closer and closer. And, you know, the only time it ran away is when I picked up my iPhone to take a picture of it. Wow. <laughs> then he darted away. <laughs> so there's a message there. <laughs> Rule to self. Yeah. Don't pick up your iPhone when you see a wild one approach. Yeah, don't text and look at rats. That's a classic. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. The squirrels, they have everything, and they're looking at you, and we're looking at them. And they, I mean, it's amazing what those little guys get up to. I mean, they're dancing, they're talking, they're arguing. They're quarreling. I mean, squirrels, they argue, man. They have, the squirrels have like a whole argue fest happening. Yeah. And a whole comedian fest as well. They've got a whole different like tone. <laughs> you know, when they're laughing and they're quarreling, it's two different like tones, you know? I, I do know what you're talking about. I think it's interesting. A lot of the times, I don't want to say all the time, like every time. But when Christ was teaching, he was pointing to nature more than he was pointing any sort of doctrine or anything. He'd say, look at the birds of the air mm-hmm. or look at this tree and look at the nature and the law of things. Mm-hmm. So there is something very beautiful. Again, we forget this about mm-hmm. watching how unworried a bird is. <laughs> Have you ever seen a one-legged pigeon in a park? No. Yeah, I've seen that in London <laughs> and I've seen it in Dublin. I know I've got to think about one-legged pigeons. They always seem to follow <laughs> me and I look at them and I'm fascinated because I've got my problems and I think they're so big. Then I see this little pigeon darting around in one leg, and I think, oh, my God, it's so humbling. <laughs> it's so humbling, a one-legged pigeon. And I said this to a friend of mine, and she said to me, have you ever seen a pigeon without legs? I'm like, no, I don't know if I want to. And she said, there is, because there's a thing. Like, she remembers seeing a, a pigeon without any legs, wow. but still surviving because it would just eat the, the crumbs from the ground. And it didn't have legs um, because... Some places in, in cities like London or New York have these razor-sharp things sticking up to prevent the birds from landing. Oh, and it landed And on they landed on that because they were young and they weren't aware of, of being cautious. Right. And both legs came off. Oh, boy. And it was really painful. It was really hard to see. And I'm just saying, I've just seen the one-legged pigeon, and that's enough for me to realize I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. So our wounds as human beings... Bring us in touch with our humanity. Well, you got sick before you went into your apprenticeship. Isn't well, that that's right? all part of the apprenticeship yeah. is that woundedness. We get a calling illness, which... Yeah, tell me in, about that. In South Africa, we call it the Twaza. You're, 60, you're 17 at this point? No, I, got the, I, got the, I don't want to dart too, too, too much into my illness quickly because I'm still dealing with a one-legged pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Give it a bit of space here. Yeah, you know? sure. No, respect so, the pigeon story. So with animals, when an animal is wounded... It pays attention to its wounds. And even the most wild animals, the most fierce animals like the leopard or the lion, when they get wounded, they can die just like that. Yeah. So with us as human beings, we have to learn from the animal kingdom to embrace our wounds 
in order to survive. So our vulnerability is also is what is what's saving us. Hmm. So a wild animal like a lion, like an elephant, they they're very powerful, but they're also very vulnerable. So the same thing for an elephant. An elephant can get a thorn in its foot and it can die within, I don't know, three, four days because it can't take the thorn out. So with human beings, we have to see our wounds as tattoos of honor and look at our depression, look at our sadness and not bring our consciousness away from it, but actually allow those wounds to teach us how to become more human, how to become more empathic and more loving. Hmm. So that's the sense. Um, when you become a, a Sangoma, normally it's through a calling, and a calling often in Southern Africa, in Southern Africa it often involves an illness, and the illness is called the Twaza. And in terms of international language, I had to do a lot of research on this because I didn't know about what was happening to me being a, a white middle-class kid. And I found a lot of writings of Ken Wilber and um, Spectrums of Consciousness and other other writers where they spoke about sh- at the shamanic illness and international shamanic illness, which is found in all traditional cultures and also in Western world um, and involves depression, involves all kinds of um, dreams associate also with the nervous system and the body getting weaker. So in my case, uh, the Twaza illness, um, like I say, which is synonymous with the, the calling and becoming a, a Sangoma in Southern Africa or traditional shaman, I've, I had all these incredible dreams and prophetic dreams where I saw the future and, and then also had dreams, uh, dreams about other people and what was happening to them. And then on top of that, my physical body started getting very weak and my immune system was very weak. So what was actually happening is that my consciousness was expanding and my energy was moving into the spirit world. So my physical body was getting weaker. So that's why I got all different kinds of illnesses and my body was very clumsy because I didn't have a lot of energy in my physical body, but I had a lot of energy in my spirit and in my psychic body. So that's why at night I would get all these incredible experiences like almost being on LSD or or hallucinogenic medicine spontaneously. That's where a lot of energy was for me. When you were asleep? When I was asleep, I had all these prophetic dreams, all these things would happen to me. And then when I woke up, I was exhausted. I was fatigued. I was losing weight. Um, My body was shaking. My hands were shaking like I had an illness. I looked like a heroin addict. A lot of friends in my family thought that I had some kind of addiction or some kind of eating disorder. And there was a lot of people talking behind my back thinking that, I had some kind of yeah eating disorder or some kind of uh, addiction or drug addiction because my eyes were black. Um, I was extremely thin and I would be eating three full meals a day, um, but my body was burning it up. Why was that? Because the energy was going into the spirit, into the psychic realm. And this is known in, 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 in Southern Africa amongst the Sangormas. And the way to heal that is to accept the calling and to find a teacher who can do ceremonies to balance the body and the spirit. Is the illness to get your attention? Yes. And also to make you empathic. To make you empathic. If you're going to go into healing, it goes, here's what it's like to be sick. Well, I mean, we, we, I think this is beyond the mind of the human. This is back into the mystic, into, um, into the world of, 
of uh, you could say the matrix or the world of of um, collective consciousness or the world of God and nature. I mean, this is bigger than human beings. It's bigger than being an American. It's bigger than being a South African. It's it's something else. Mm. And that's why I lecture and talk about these things because I want people to realize that there's, there's, much, there's something much bigger than just being American or being English or being white or being Crosa or being French. There's something else going out there, going on there, and that's the world of the indigenous humanist mm. who's connected to nature and it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what language you speak. As a Sangoma, I can work with you. The only decision you have to make is how willing are you to look into yourself, into the wilderness inside yourself, and connect with the God inside of you and your spirit and nature around you? How willing are you to connect to the breath inside of you and the one-legged pigeon? Mm-hmm. That's the only question I ask people. Because I don't care what language you speak I don't care what you look like What I do care is that you have the commitment To look into your wounds and your pain Hmm. And And the sickness inside of you Is also The alchemy That can make you into a mystic Hmm. Wow So then you became I know I love it We're going to put music under that I'm teasing It was beautiful um, you're going, then you get inducted, you find your teacher and the illness goes away? It went away over a period of time. So first, in that first initial meeting, as I shared with you earlier, she, my teacher asked me if I wanted to become a Sangoma. And I said, what does a Sangoma mean? Because I was brought up, like I say, in apartheid South Africa, where we just saw uh, medicine or witch doctors. And witch doctors had a very um, derogatory and negative impression and I had a, always had a feeling that witch doctors were much bigger and more positive and more beautiful and profound than what was being popularized or popularized my culture. So my illness started going away as soon as I accepted to become my teacher's apprentice, to become a Sangoma. So the first step is to accept the illness. And when I'm teaching and working with people around the world, I also say the first thing you need to do is accept whatever suffering you've got. Don't blame don't shame, accept your illness, whatever it is, and that's the first step towards healing and becoming a more awake human being. Hmm. Beautiful. We, I only have 20 minutes, so we have to hit some, some big ones. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about your book because I, I want people to know about your book. Um, well, why don't we do that now? It's called, just so we don't forget at the, at the end, it's called Leopard Warrior. Because is, and the leopard is your, I don't want to say spirit animal, but is that kind of the, de- the deal? In South Africa, the leopard is, is one of our main totem animals amongst traditional healers, amongst Sangomas, amongst the traditional shamans, also amongst nobility, amongst chiefs, heads of state, presidents. We use the leopard as a reminder to us of our connection to the animal world because the leopard represents intuitive intelligence and nobility of spirit. However, we also have other animals that we work with, but the leopard is a, is, is a big animal. You know, it's an important animal that we work with. Mm-hmm. And how long is the section that you would like to read? If you, you had something bookmarked, I'd love to hear a little of it. It's, it's just a couple of pages. It's up to yourself. I mean, we have 20 minutes. Let's do it. Okay. So this section is a little bit about what we've been talking about in terms of nature. Great. And I've called it Nature is Divination. Nature is divination, tracking nature, tracking spirit. And this section 
talks about how I um, was being initiated in in the natural world. So I was just going through the final initiation ceremonies, and part of that meant going to the sea, going to the river, going to the forest, and being blessed by the spirits of nature, as well as by my teacher and other senior Sangormas. So the sun crested the horizon as mist rose from the wet road, creating a mysterious haze. The countryside around us consisted, consisted of thick bush and dispersed with open grassland. Occasionally, Mangwevu pointed to a plant and mentioned its qualities. As we descended a steep ravine, a troop of baboons crossed the road. We all shouted, Gamagu, and honoured and praised our ancestors. The baboon, Mfenen Isikosa, is one of my animal spirits or Isilos, something I discovered after a number of mysterious dreams and physical encounters. Many Sangomas have baboon Isilo. This animal is one of the guardians of the plant world, and when they come to us in a dream, it is considered very lucky. They are the old men of the bushveld that depart their intuitive wisdom to us Sangomas, so we can maintain the balance between the natural world and man. A large alpha baboon stood guard over the troop. My friends laughed and pointed at it, as they felt it represented me in my upcoming ceremony, a lucky omen. We rounded another bend and roared, Amagu! This time a troop of monkeys, renowned as an Isilo of the Nguevu clan, was crossing the road. This was a sign that the Nguevu ancestors were with us. The Nguevu ancestors are my teacher's ancestors or clan, clan people. Our animal, tent, our animal totems help open the road for us, enabling us to fulfill our life purpose. They are a sign from our ancestral spirits that we are not alone and that our lives are blessed and supported by them. The physical road we were traveling represented our spiritual road and our earlier prayers had primed the ancestors to direct and guide us. These signs of nature were also indications of how the ancestors wanted me to use my Sangoma gifts in the world. We arrived at the sea as the sun broke through the clouds and spread its inviting rays across the ocean's surface. Mangwevu stormed toward the sea like a general leading her troops into battle. The ancestors were waiting, and she was anxious to start her prayers before the sun climbed any higher. I grabbed her ceremonial sticks and ran after her. We all greeted the ducks flying overhead with Tamagu and waited for Mangwevu to open the morning prayers. The water lapped gently at our feet as our white garments flapped in the wind. It was cold. We watched the sea for signs. Then Mama began shouting amid the roaring sea and whistling wind. I on and praise you old people. I on and praise my ancestors. When she paused, we all responded to her prayers with Tamagu. Mama made offerings of tobacco, rose petals, and an assortment of herbs to the sea. As Mangwevu prayed and chanted, the sea seemed to rise up and take on a life of its own. It became a living, breathing creature with the power to grant our wishes or take our lives. We stepped gingerly on the cloak of her white foam with a sense of trepidation and excitement. So Mangwevu opened her heart and prayed like her life depended on it. 
She prayed to her ancestors, the Great Spirit, and the spirits of the sea. She asked them to bless her family and bless my Sangoma Umgudusul ceremony. She scattered white and turquoise beads into the waves while chanting her prayers in a quick staccato fashion. The sea responded by moving closer to her. Suddenly she was drenched above her knees. Apprentices rushed to her side, holding her elbows from both sides and pulling her back from the sea. But she was in another world, and the fingers of the sea were drawing her closer. Another wave rushed toward her as she finished her prayers. At the same time, the elder men and Sangomas started talking and pointing to the horizon. In a reef out to sea, there appeared a carriage of light that moved across the water. Tata pointed and whispered, The spirits from the sea have answered our prayers. We all screamed, Then nature herself began calling to us from the earth, wind and sea. Flocks of ducks and seagulls called in their flight above us. And we replied, The sea crept toward us with a rhythm of its own and whirlpools of water appeared beside us. All around us on the wet sand, we suddenly saw sea snails that had burrowed and crawled in their language of spirals. And we all shouted our joy and love at being heard by the ancient ones. Tamagu! <laughs> I love it. And that's in the middle of the book. <laughs> yeah, towards the end. You know, it's to do with um, my initiation, my final initiation, where I became a senior Sangoma. I mean, we didn't even really talk about that. I'm glad we got to hear a little bit about it. <laughs> the 10 year journey. I mean, you're the only white. <laughs> put it plainly, white guy in, in included in this. I mean, isn't that a historical thing? No, I'm not the only one anymore. But I was one of the first to be initiated after apartheid fell. Amazing. Um, and then to be given the title of a senior Kosa Sangoma, which is a wow. very honorific and a very uh, it's a very dignified position. So I'm one of the first post-apartheid South Africa. But now we do have quite a few white people who are being trained. And that's a good thing because they're also South Africans. And it's about, it's about educating everyone to come close to the earth. Mm. And just to, just to reiterate, people don't become a Sangormas if they want to, only right. if you're chosen and called right. by the spirits and the ancestors. Right. And it's, it's not something I would wish on anyone. <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd only encourage some to do it if they had no choice because they got sick and because their dreams were so clear. Yeah, wow. Because it's, it's, it's glamorous. It seems glamorous to people, but it's not glamorous. It's it's becoming an empath, which means someone who can feel the suffering of others. Hmm. Well, it's beautifully written. <laughs> Thank you. So people should check that out. It's called Leopard Warrior. Hmm. Obviously, it's available now. We have ten minutes, uh, eleven minutes. Um, I want to ask you two final questions. One um, is about death. What what is your feeling on death? You've been around it. You've hmm. seen it. Sometimes I just ask people, "What do you think happens when they die?" I'm wondering what your thoughts are in general about death as a as something that we all have to deal with. I mean, I'm scared of death. I think we all are. But at the same time... Yeah, isn't it weird that we all have to do a cannonball into infinity? It's like I the know. last thing we do. <laughs> it's like, like we're all just kind of eating at Chipotle, and the next thing you never know, you might be summoned to do a cannonball into the eye of a tornado. 
but it's something <laughs> I've noticed. I mean, even this year, I I buried two of my 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 um, community members. Mm. One was a young boy of fourteen years old. I was very close to him, mm. and I went to his. I went to his um, funeral and we, we buried him. So we, I watched how his coffin went into the ground, how all the elder men put soil on and how the next door grave was drumming and singing. Mm. And it was, it was horrific because he was so young and it was a tragedy. And then the second funeral I went to was of one of my elders who had supported me for many years and he died. Um, and we, again, I watched the, the coffin going into the ground amidst the prayers and the drumming. And it's horrific. Death is horrific and it's painful. But at the same time, when I've dreamt about my, like my young friend who died and I saw him on the other side, as he was dying and went into the earth, this side, he was being reborn on the other side. That's what I saw with my dream. Hmm. And uh, I saw the same thing when my Zen master died many years ago. And my Zen master comes from Hawaii. And that's how I ended up meeting Ram Das because I went on pilgrimage to honor my 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 Zen master, Zen master Subong, and that's how I met Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman. And, uh, and Trudy, it turned out, was a very old friend of of, of Subong, and I never realised that her her ex husband was best friends with him, and and that's how I ended up coming to L.A. Mm-hmm. So when when um, Subong died in Hong Kong from a sudden heart attack, it broke all our hearts in South Africa, and I remember dreaming about him afterwards. I wanted one more interview with him. And, uh, and I remember the dream so vividly. He had died. And then when I went to sleep, I wasn't quite asleep where I was taken to this other world. And in this other world, I saw monks and nuns dancing and doing cartwheels. And it was this very mysterious world. And then the next thing, he materialized out of this cave just above us. And I went walking towards him. And I just said to everyone, I'm coming to have one more interview with my teacher. And I just almost got to him when there was this voice said to me, the man you know, Subong, is, is about to be reborn. And his, his body is going to change. And, um, and he needs to go now. And that was it. So he turned mm. around and he went back into the cave. And, and then I heard from, a, from someone who was a psychic that he, he had been reborn. So... My feeling on death is that it's a cycle of life. And it's as we change, as water changes into steam, it goes from a solid state where it's frozen and then it goes into a liquid state and then it goes into a a steam state. That's what I feel with human beings. And Death is a steam state. It's a steam state. It's (laughs) a state of of where the spirit gets a little bit more ephemeral and moves into another realm. Mm. And, uh, you know, old science speaks about this. E equals MC squared, where energy never loses its essence. It just changes shape. Mm. Um, And this is what I've experienced with my friends who have died over the years because there are lots of poverty where I trained in the Eastern Cape, a high death rate to AIDS and, and epidemics like TB and hepatitis. And I lost about five or six of my friends from from tragedy and and poverty. And I dreamt about them. Some of them I dreamt when they entered the other world. And they came and they visited me and they showed me their their lives. Mm. And and I wasn't sure in depth, but it was enough for me to see how they're living on the other world. And my um, 
one of my interpreters who I became very close to, he was the one who, he's cross a man and he introduced me to my teacher, Mamguevu, and he died tragically a number of years ago. And uh, I remember dreaming about him after he died. And I was, I was completely broken hearted because we were so close. And then I met up with his, his wife and I said to her, Mama, I said, Mother, di pupila and daughter Yako, I dreamt about your husband. And I shared the dream and what I saw. And she said, She said, you speaking the truth because I've had a similar dream about my husband. Hmm. And then she did the funeral rites and the ceremonies, which is a sign of bringing the spirit of the departed back home. And I remember nursing my teacher's sick um, sister who eventually died and I was taking her to the doctor and she was very, very sick. And I took her back to her home and, and then we were getting groceries and shopping. And my lovely friend's wife, my friend who had died, his wife, I saw her in, in town and she stopped me and she, she was very animated and her whole face was beaming and she said, Tlingo. I'm like, yes, mama. She says, we finished this, the ceremony for my husband and the pupile, I had the dream. I saw him in the other world. And and my husband is happy now. Hmm. So it's a sign of there is life after death. And when we do these prayers and we listen to our dreams in a profound way, it heals our humanity. It heals our consciousness. And yes, there is death. But yes, there is life after death. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> Are there more things in the book about getting in tune with your dreams and some is it more of a memoir or is there instruction in, in there as well it's both it's both. I mean it is a memoir because I want people to get an experience of what does it mean to be an indigenous shaman mm -hmm. especially from Africa what does it mean and the best way to tell a story is from personal experience because it is secret and um and I'm not giving any secrets away about the culture, but I'm sharing some of my experience. Mm. But there is a chapter which I, I talk about on Ubuntu, on humanity. And through the, through the story, I do give the reader insights mm. in how they can develop certain um, experiences themselves. Cool. So, Super fun. Mm. I wish I wasn't running out of time. Uh, I have to leave at 3.30, which means we have four minutes. But the last question's easy. <laughs> and you've been so wonderful. So thank you. Thank you. Um, it, can you remember, we always like, because we talk about death, we like to do something lighter afterwards. Can you think of a time in your life maybe you laughed the hardest you've ever laughed? <laughs> I laughed the hardest. Oh, I remember last year meeting you. That was pretty good. <laughs> we did have a good we laugh. We had a really good laugh. Yeah, yeah. we did. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, there have been other laughs, but... Uh, that was a good meal. That, that was, was me, you, and Misty, Misty yeah. and I think Govinda was there. It was very funny. It was very, very funny. Yeah. We were speaking about goats. and it was, We talked it was a very, lot about goats. Yeah. Loading the goat with It was the a bit prayer. derogatory about goats. I was feeling a bit, a bit derogatory. But then it was extremely yeah. funny because this one guy was talking about – there was this mixture of seriousness and then profane. And this one man was talking about his experience in South Africa dealing with a very extreme situation of traditional culture and mm. someone who was sick – and not to go into it, but I remember us all listening to him, and then it was just so funny. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you were very funny. It was, yeah. just, it was very funny. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes at the retreat, it gets so serious, my funny part 
gets turned up. Yeah, it was turned, <laughs> and we were almost like high. We were almost high with, yeah, with, with I humor. I mean, no. we all fell away after that, like we were on acid or something. Yeah, it, was it was very a, funny. It was, it was a, a very funny thing. moment, and that's how we met you and me. It was very funny. Yeah, and here we are, <laughs> all this way in LA, all this time later, and you're going to be there again. In November. Yes, yes, I'll be back at the Rum Dust Retreat in November. Yes, yes I'll, I'll be there as well. Will you? Excellent. Yeah, I'll be there, yeah. Yeah, you can't keep me away. I mean, it was incredible. Last year was amazing. I know. It's so great. Well, I could talk to you for another two hours easily, but we'll, this time yeah. we'll wrap up here. Good. And um, you. would you – we have the guests say the catchphrase. I don't – I won't ask you to say it. What is the name of the language you're speaking? There's Cosa. A, yeah, there's a click. Cosa. There's a click in it that I don't know if I got. Cosa, Cosa, Cosa. 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 Yeah, that's you're almost there. He's Cosa. almost there. He's getting Cosa. it. Yeah, he? but you're doing it at the same time. You're doing it well. Um, we say keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. Yeah. <laughs> so you can – is there a way to say that in Cosa? Keep it crispy. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Eh? No. <laughs> Probably not. There's a lot of clicks if I had to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we would need another mic thing. Um, well, if you'd say keep it crispy, that's how we'll end. Keep it crispy. Thank you, John Lockley. <laughs> Thank you very much.